This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry South and Jeffrey Liam Simpson. The gang's all here and we are locked and loaded to help you uh, get through this day. It's uh, it's a what day is it? Is it Tuesday or Wednesday? This would be Wednesday. Wednesday, you just got a free day there. I just got a free day. How do you hey, feel? Hey, it's hump day. Yeah, <laughs> I'm halfway through my week. See, on Monday, I was sitting there telling my wife, "Okay, on Wednesday tomorrow," and she goes, "No, tomorrow's Tuesday." I'm like, "Come on, come on!" I just added a week. You just gave yourself just gave a free a day. day. I like that. Boy, the week's going fast. Yeah, it's this like the bonus exciting. fry at the bottom of the bag. It's even better than that because it's not brown and crispy. Burnt. Although that sounds pretty good, even if it's burnt. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I did have fries yesterday for the first time in a very long time. <gasps> me and too. Made me sick. Yeah, mm-hmm. it'll do that. <laughs> My gallbladder, I don't think, can take fries yet. Really? Yeah, it's. I think it's off of fries. Come on. No. You know it was worth it. Not really. No. Wow. I mean, it was, it was for a minute. It was the next, like, 30 minutes that was... <laughs> Not so worth it. <laughs> anyway, too much information for all of y'all. Hey, we still we're still talking about Las Vegas that shooting, and again, more and more stories are coming out about the victims that were involved. They're now starting to piece it all together. Uh, also, by the way, hero stories, unbelievable. More people, friend. I mean, uh, uh, I just heard one on CNN of a, a guy that basically held his friend as his friend died. What do you do? As he's just bleeding out, and then when he's passed and the guy keeps shooting, what do you do? Do you just leave your friend and go? So he did. He left his friend. He ran. He jumped the fence and stood there a few minutes and then went back to his friend, and he just couldn't leave his friend. And the, the man's mm. holding his cowboy hat saying, this is all I've got left. Unbelievable. Wow. But it does show us that – Humans, know, I mean, we all. This is the fear of all of us that something like this can happen, and yet you get through it. People get through it. it I mean, it's horrible, but they are the human will to survive is incredible. There's so many stories of people that probably shouldn't be with us anymore, and they are. Uh, death toll, I still think, is at 59. Twenty-something people are actually um, critically injured still and wounded. So there, I mean, more deaths could actually still still happen. So our prayers again, stay with the people that uh, that have been going through this. And really, now all of a sudden you see politicians starting to maneuver. You see a lot of uh, people trying to make sense of it all. They're getting more information about how meticulously planned this was. So uh, anyway, crazy stuff. Also today on the show, if you worry about your memory and why you can't remember anything, you got to watch. The, you got to be listening to this. I think within reason. If you can't remember a lot of things, it might be yeah. a problem. But well, the occasional forgetfulness well, might be... Yeah, well, things yeah. that you need to remember, but there's a lot of stuff that your brain is supposed to forget. If, and, you, if you look at your family and you're like, I, I think Jimmy, I Johnny, know Johnny, you. Johnny, Julie, Julie, Jerry, um, sit down. Maybe there's a discussion there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about it because it really, your mind and your memory, it has a, it may have a different purpose than you think. You're not probably supposed to remember everything. Didn't we... Just talk about this yesterday on the show. Yes, yeah, he can't remember anything. You can't remember, can you? Is it is it bad where I, when I only had two kids, I was mixing up their oh, names constantly? No, totally. I don't even say their names anymore. That's Why just try? being a parent. Yeah, it's defeating to say their names. So I just say you. 
We'd have a roll call at my house. My mom would want one of us. She'd name all three. We'd all show up, and she'd go, you, you, go. <laughs> the you. boys, get out of here. Girl, you're in trouble. Sometimes you can just grunt, and they can tell that you mean yeah. business. Oh, yeah. And then they'll come running. Oh, and can I just tell you, you all need grandkids. Whoa, Whoa not all, yet. All in due time. Yeah. <laughs> Man, they're awesome. Give my, us like 20 years. My granddaughter Jeez. came to my other office and surprised me, and we got to hang out. All all evening. It was so, awesome. so you didn't get any work done, is what you said. I got no work See? done. But oh, I got to be with my grandbaby. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Honestly. Greatest thing in the world. Like, you think kids are great? Grandkids, three times better. Because they go away at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what else? They take their they take your kids. Yeah. They take your children with them. <laughs> it's great. It's so Two for awesome. one. They come, and then you don't even have to pay attention to your kids when they come. They just You just pay attention to the grandbaby. And then you hand them back, and then everyone leaves. That's what I do. I go to my parents, bring my kids, and then I get through my email yeah. that I haven't got through that day. And my, my kids are playing around, and the parents so are happy. Awesome. It's great. But you, you feed them straight sugar first before oh, you yeah. send them back. Oh, you can <laughs> give them anything. And you know what? You don't even need to feed it to them. They just bring it to you and ask for permission. Like, can I eat this? <laughs> and you're like, whatever. I don't even know where they got it. You're not my kid. Go ahead. I didn't even know we had fruit snacks. <laughs> Did you find them under the couch? Sure. Eat it. Uh, let's get to the headlines now with Terry South. Terry, what's going on we should be paying attention to? The girlfriend of gunman Stephen Paddock, who opened fire in Las Vegas on Sunday night, killing 59 people, and then himself, has returned to the U.S. from the Philippines, where she was traveling when the shooting occurred. She was questioned by the F- She will be questioned by the FBI. She was met at the gate, apparently, by federal agents, which is always what you want when you return to the country. Oh, wow. Welcome uh, home. Mary Lou Danley left the U.S. September 25th. Police have called her a person of interest in the investigation. Authorities have also said that the shooter transferred $100,000 into her account in the Philippines last month. Uh-oh. A little strange there. No no idea what that's about. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California announced plans to introduce legislation to ban the sale of bump stocks, a device that allows semi-automatic firearms to function like an automatic weapon. The ATF says the shooter in Las Vegas had bump stocks on 12 of the guns in the hotel room. So he didn't, like, alter the gun. He put these... It's like an aftermarket add-on piece that uh, makes the triggering mechanism act like an uh, automatic weapon by firing more often than it does does before. So that's the sound everyone was hearing with the bump stocks. The bad side is it it eliminates your ability to aim because Ah. it's it's dealing with the recoil. Yeah. So you're just like just hammering bullets out. Which he didn't. I mean, the reality is he didn't need to aim too well. He was just spraying a crowd of people and... But he did have scopes on his gun, too. So. He wanted to watch. Yeah. What if he had had silencers? We just passed a sign on the freeway yesterday and said, 15% off silencers, and we just rolled our eyes and yeah. thought, oh, man. Apparently, they're illegal. Yeah. <sighs> In most, well, like 42 states yeah. I saw yesterday. I think it's you great. You know, whatever. Create all the laws, all you want, and then people just still have issues, right? They do. They'll just find a way. So, uh, and so because Dianne Feinstein is doing that, Republican leaders have pushed back, saying it's too early to talk about any it sort is. of like and yet it needs to be. We didn't talk about it for the last since the last shooting. So I saw what was it, uh, Jimmy Kimmel or was it Colbert? I think they both talked they about did. it. But uh, there's like they showed 15 clips of people saying it's too early on the you know yeah. with 15 different shootings. So when when is the time to yeah. discuss Good it? Point. That's the question. Um, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, you've thrown your budget a little out of whack, President Trump Uh. remarked in a press conference Tuesday near San Juan, because we spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, he continued. And that's fine, because we've saved a lot of lives in the wake of Hurricane Maria. President Trump on Tuesday said Puerto Rico's debt 
would need to be wiped out in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, but offered no further details and provided no time frame for the approximately $70 billion in debt relief they need. You know what he does? Mm. He's got a really incredible ability to like kick you in the gut and then say, but your gut's really tight. You've got a really nice gut, and I'm sorry I kicked you there. So he hits you, and then he tries to smooth it over with a compliment. Right. So your budget's really out of whack, but we have saved a lot of lives, and it's going to take more money to save lives. And if you guys had pulled your head out, this wouldn't be a problem. Oh, and you've done a great job in the recovery. Great job. He then suggested Puerto Ricans should be happy because their death toll pales in comparison to other recent disasters. If you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina... And you look at the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died, and you look at what happened here, and like 16 people certified versus the thousands. You can be very proud of all your people and all of the people working together. He then left the island, and the governor updated the number to 34. It's like telling a mom, I know your son died, but there's this other family, and both of their sons died. They lost both sons. It could be so much worse. Is it? I just think he's so used to winging it. Yeah, which you can do, sure. you know, when you're at a, when you're at some, you know, speech at man at uh, his, to the Boy Scouts yeah. or something. Yeah, that's fine. Just wing it. Wing it. You just can't wing it <laughs> to the Boy Scouts, and you can't wing it <laughs> when you're at an island where it's been devastated. Right, and they have seventy billion in debt, and you say, "Hey, we're just going to wipe that and out." Is, he goes, "I don't know if it's Goldman Sachs or whoever, but it's gone. We'll take care of it." Again, like, I want to. Ugh. I really want that's to a like a president, and he makes it so hard because you offend. People that just all they need right now is compassion, just a hug. Come help us move some stuff. Right. Come just get some good visuals of you moving a tree off of a road. He was tossing paper towels like basketballs yesterday. Yeah, throwing that? throwing paper relief towels supplies, at people yeah. that needed relief supplies. Here, have fun. Catch Here. this. Oh, you didn't even catch it. Yeah, that was taking some. Uh, it, I don't know. I saw the video. I know. I know. I, just, it's not so bad, but at the same time, it's. He, and again, I don't want to disparage him because he's at, he's at least he's there. Right. But <sighs> he'll be in Vegas today, so he'll make it better in Vegas today. Another <laughs> wow. new Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has has had open disputes with President Trump, and in one case, describing him as a moron in front of a group of officials after a July twentieth meeting. You sure he at wasn't the Pentagon? You sure he didn't say Mormon? No, he said moron. Oh, okay. The incident was witnessed by Trump's security team and cabinet officials, in addition to at least three others who reported it to NBC News. Tillerson uh, nearly resigned this past summer because of his tensions with the president. Moron? Called him a moron. Hold on. The Secretary of State called the president a moron? Probably has a lot to do with the fact that he's trying to stop a war with North Korea and the other, the president keeps stoking a fire that doesn't need to be antagonized. Yeah, I, heard, but. I think in that same article it talked about the fact that Rex Tillerson wanted to leave. He wanted to, they call it the Rexit. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> he the wants, Rexit. He wants out, but uh, our Vice President Pence stepped in and said, just be calm. Be yeah. calm. We can't have any more administration leave until the new year. Now he needs one year before he starts losing. In level. the art of the deal, apparently, it talks about this sort of chaos management. Yeah, I think idea. that's. I think. It, I think it really is an interesting approach. Yeah. It. I just think it might be. Maybe we're proving it wrong. Maybe. You we'll think see. Trump's going to hold on to that one and save it for a rainy day? Uh, the time that he called him a moron. No, Tillerson called President Trump a moron. That's what I'm saying. But he, oh, Trump yeah, oh, didn't yeah. hear him. So no. it's all secondhand. Oh. And Tillerson's people are like, he didn't say that. Yeah, they're like, oh, they're all downplaying it now. So. He said neuron. Did you hear what the NBA <laughs> is doing with the All-Star game? 
No. They made a change Are yesterday. Are they going to play it? So currently what it is, well, yeah. Currently what it is is you, you elect uh, the fans vote and you have an Eastern Conference and a Western yeah. Conference. Oh, no way. Right? So now they're splitting it and what they're going to do is they're going to elect captains and they're going to select from the entire pool of all-stars that were elected to the game. What a joke. So you'll end that's, up having just people from the East playing in the West. You'll have teammates going NBA against each other. realizing that they've messed the deal up because the West is so lopsided. It the says, West would destroy the East. It says 12 player, players will still be selected from each conference as all-stars. Five players from each conference will be selected uh, per a weighted vote. That is a 50% van, fan vote, 25% player choice, 25% media. These are the available starters. The top vote getter in each conference will be a team captain. Head coaches from each conference will be select, uh, select seven reserves for a total of 14 available bench players. Then the fun begins. Each team captain will be able to draft his starters and reserves playground style from the pool of chosen players oh, rather than have the teams be determined only weighted a vote. What they're trying to avoid is you'll have like the Golden State Warriors and yeah. four of their starters will start on the Western Conference team. Right. They want to avoid that. So but they want to maybe split that, it up. Oh, but, so, but is there still going to be half of the players from the East and half from the West? No, you'll have East players. Uh, there's no East and West. There's two I know, teams. I know, but, so, but that's, the po- that's what they're trying to avoid. It's, they're trying to avoid the fact that the West has five or six teams with two to three all-star players. Right. And the and the West, the East doesn't have as many all-stars. No. So you know, it would have been so lopsided it would have been embarrassing. So they're going to mix it up just oh, like you walk boy. out on a playground and you know you just who's the last guy? What's the most embarrassing thing in PE class? You're the yeah. last well, one like picked. Dirk Nowitzki's like, "Wait, hey. What's he even an all-star for? Well, I guess we'll take him." But isn't that interesting? And do you really want to see billionaires do a little street ball pick-me-up game where they have the captains choose the teams? Sure. If Trump is playing, sure. I don't think this this will work once. This not, is a great one-year solution. They're not solution. billionaires. But well, I mean, yeah, soon. millionaires. I mean, LeBron's well, close. Them, yeah. But is that, I don't know. I just think, it, I think it's a great one-year fix. You just fixed it for one year. But what maybe, maybe the NBA wants. Unless it works. Maybe the NBA ought, ought to try to figure out a way to level the playing field across all the teams. So that five teams don't own all of the players. But, so it's interesting. Why are our sports... Why do we want them to be so social, socialistic? But like life, we want it to be free and open. Well, because and you want a you want a real free marketplace, right? Do we? A real a real free marketplace. So is that, it is it a free well, marketplace if like the boss is telling you how to be a free marketplace? Well, if the NBA, that's what you're saying. No, if the NBA wants players, to, if if the NBA wants to have uh, enough teams yeah. that they can keep their value up, it's sure. not fun to watch three all stars. Come in and play a team with no all stars and cream them. But that's, that's how that's how world soccer works, and it's very very popular. Right. You have some teams that have like five or six guys that are all world, and they go play teams in their whatever their league that are, have nobody, and they just blow them out and move on. Man, People so, love it. Yeah, but in the end, do you want to have seven teams in the country that never win a game? Such a communist way of doing things. It's what it is. It's really un-American. What it what it is is it probably tells us that this isn't just a free market system, hmm. because there's other monies added. There's other advantages given. Sure. There's certain markets. So I think do something different because the game currently is boring. It is getting boring. You go out, nobody plays till the final like four minutes of the fourth quarter, yeah. and then it's it's even then now. The last couple of years, they don't even play then. They're just like, eh, whatever. Let's just 
just throw up a bunch of dunks and well, not and even try. So. Once you're and once these dominant teams are ahead twenty games, yeah. then they just sit their players. Oh yeah, for yeah. Three During weeks. the season, they just coast. But that's kind of what they do in the world soccer. Look yeah. at all the money it makes. Well, I mean, it it's makes very money, popular. But money may not be the best example of what's healthy, right? It is Maybe. exhausting, though. What? You're right. Basketball. It's an exhausting game. You know, like if you're playing a sport and you're sweating, you're playing too hard. Like when I play ping pong <laughs> is that what, is that and I break a sweat, you play I, got, I got to sit down. Yeah. He's the only guy I've ever seen play ping pong sitting down. Bowling. Oh, talk about breaking a sweat. Yeah. So this is one of the, I mean, all the major sports have kind of messed with their all-star game trying to make it more watchable. For me, I'll actually turn this on to see what's going well, on. It, but I don't think – I think that's the illusion. The illusion we'll is they're doing it to make it more exciting. That The All-Star game is already exciting because remember they used to play for who got home court advantage, west or the east, right, in the playoffs. No, they've never done that in basketball. They did that in baseball. Oh, or football too, yeah. And, and everyone – when well, the All-Star game in football have, is it's a complete waste because no one tackles, no one does anything. So it's just sort of they, they – they lightly but, touch each other. But don't you – are you sure? I swear no, in NBA – No, baseball. Baseball played for home – home. who had home, home field, field in the World Series. But the, the the All-Star games are kind of exciting simply because it's so many points are being put up when the scores are like 150 to 130 in an All-Star game. That's more exciting. But honestly – If they played hard. Nobody plays hard in the, in the All-Star game. They're the, afraid of getting hurt. This is – I, I, I seriously believe this is more about covering the fact that the West is oh, so sure. dominant this year. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how many real all-stars, really, from last year are in the East anymore? I mean, there's going to be people that rise to that because— Now they'll rise. Yeah, because but other how many, people have left. Yeah. How many of last year's all-stars are still in the East? Three? Something like that, yeah. So there's your yeah. problem. So now let's change the game. Well, great. Change the rules. <laughs> the game means nothing to begin with, so go ahead right. and play. You know, try a different approach. Oh. A lot of Eastern all-stars in the uh, MLB you're still going to ring up the baseball, aren't you? He just keeps bringing baseball. He always wants to bring there baseball. There was the East playoff game yesterday. Home field advantage worked for the Yankees. Oh. And there were a lot of points scored. That's what Spencer and Jerem called. They said it'll, be, it'll go to the Yankees. Hmm. So there were six runs scored in the first inning. Ah, uh, there you go. Three on each side. So it was a good game. Man, sorry I missed it. Well, oh, I was with my grandchild. Hmm. Glad that you brought it up, though. Are you? Baseball. We, we can't forget baseball. I mean, a lot of people are, but, you, but we can't. We can't because Jeff won't let us. I love baseball. Uh, we are going to uh, continue the journey, folks. Uh, up, coming up next, we're going to be talking about the purpose of your memory. So maybe losing your memory, if you feel like you're losing it, maybe it's not such a bad thing. There is a reason you're not supposed to remember everything or even a lot of things. We'll be talking about it up next on The Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's normal to forget things from time to time. It may be annoying, but it is something most people experience. Researchers in Canada set out to answer the question, are people just forgetful or is the human brain being efficient and just erasing useless memories? Here to talk more about his study of memory is Professor Blake Richards, a professor of neurophysiology at the University of Toronto. Dr. Richards, thank you for your time today. Hi, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. So is it, uh, I guess it's, it's normal to be forgetful. Well, indeed it is. 
Um, obviously, the vast majority of us are occasionally forgetful. But I think more important is when we use the word forgetful, we're usually imagining that we're forgetting things that we want to remember. But it's easy to forget, no pun intended, <laughs> that we forget a multitude of things every day, none of which we notice ourselves forgetting because they're totally unimportant. So you probably can't tell me what the color of shoes were of, say, the bus driver who drove you in this morning. Right. Or you can't tell me what you had for breakfast two years ago. But you don't notice the fact that you forget those things. You just do it. You just forget it. So so yeah. I guess there. So we actually we we really worry about forgetting things that we're we know we're supposed to remember. That's right. And that's, of course, natural because there are certain things that we want to remember. And when we don't, it can be problematic. But I think what is uh, easy to look look over is the fact that the vast majority of the things that we do forget were appropriate for us to forget. And our brain actually did a pretty good job and generally does a pretty good job of identifying kind of trivial matters that can be lost. Hmm. So, so I guess without overwhelming us with your neurophysiology, so what is memory then? How does it work? And what, what is its purpose? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, so ultimately, memory is a way of transmitting information through time. Whereas we transmit information across space with things like our internet cables and satellites and stuff like that, we, we transmit information across time with our memories. And we do that, our brains do that, um, because that helps us to make better decisions and it, it helps provide us with information that can guide our behavior uh, so that we maximize our chances of survival, presumably. Hmm. Um, now, the way in which the brain does that is that it actually changes itself in response to the experiences we have. So when we have any particular experience, the connections between the cells in our brains, so the cells in our brains are called neurons, and the connections between them are called synapses. When we have any experience, the synapses change in such a way that the flow of information through the network in our brains is altered, and that helps to keep the information about what we were doing at that time stored in our, in our brain. Um, so, really, memory is about making these physical changes to our own brains in order to provide us with information in the future to guide our decision-making. And I guess that's a chemical flow, right? So, uh, in, through the synapses, is that right? And, and um, yes. so, so, if we're having a more intense experience, usually we'll have a more intense chemical associated with it. So, is the, is the memory kind of etched deeper? Yeah, right. So to That's speak. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, and, and the answer is yes, though it's, it's complicated. Yeah. So there's definitely, the, depending upon the nature of the experience, so whether it's emotionally charged, whether it's something that is totally novel, a variety of factors, that, that influences exactly how much the memory is etched into those synaptic connections, as it were. Uh, and certainly... Um, there are some things that we remember kind of forever, even if we don't necessarily want to, because of the nature of what our kind of mental state was at the time that we stored those memories. Hmm. And we really, I guess it's it's kind of a tortured web in a way, because we have some people that don't remember what they want to remember, uh, maybe with dementia or Alzheimer's or other, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of memory issues. Um, but then we have others that remember things they shouldn't remember or don't even need to remember, and they can't get them out of their mind, it seems like. 
Right, exactly. And so I think that, you know, again, to kind of come back to, to the question of um, what, what do we forget, although our brains generally do a good job of forgetting the things that we don't actually need to remember and storing the things that we do actually need to remember, this can, of course, go wrong under certain circumstances. And those circumstances might be something like a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's, or alternatively, uh, if we suffer a very traumatic experience, for example, something like PTSD. Again, the kind of mechanisms by which the brain decides what to remember and what to forget are no longer going to operate in the kind of standard effective fashion at that point in time. Hmm. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Blake Richards, who's an assistant professor of neurophysiology at the University of Toronto. We're talking about the importance of of memories, but really sometimes also the importance of forgetting information. Are our brains, um, Blake, are they are they capable of of really holding as much or more a lot more information than we actually allow them to hold than our brain holds? Indeed, they, they are, and I think that's what most people might find surprising at first when when they hear this is that. The, the scientific evidence suggests that we would actually have the capability to remember far more than we do. So both, if you do a kind of back-of-the-envelope calculation and you say, okay, we have this many brain cells and this many synaptic connections, and you work out how many memories you could presumably store with such a network, it's, it's probably enough to store pretty much every experience that we've ever had in our entire lives. Could we store all and, the data from every experience? Theoretically, we could be able to. Now, of course, wow. that's just a that's the yeah. kind of if, theoretical calculation. If it was popular, yeah, if it was possible. But, you know, evidence for this, like empirical evidence for this, exists in some forms, which is that there are, in fact, people who are able to remember almost everything that's ever occurred to them. Wow. <laughs> these, these individuals with seemingly superhuman memory uh, are, are, in fact, a real thing. Huh. And... So the, the fact that these people exist and the fact that the kind of theoretical calculations suggest that we should be able to store pretty much everything, I think shows at least somewhat convincingly that, yes, for, the, for most of us, we are not actually remembering as much as we could. So, so it's not actually an issue of capacity. It's not that our brains don't have capacity to remember very much. Instead, what seems to happen is that our brains actively erase memories. So, so a healthy person with a normal memory, their, their brains will actually get up to some erasure of memories. Hmm. Does it, is it those that have, I guess, total recall or the ability to remember everything, do they have an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, yeah, you see, that's what's fascinating, right? Is No, they don't seem to have an apparent advantage, right? So these individuals who have incredible memory, they're not running our society. They're yeah, not right. the world's top CEOs and top politicians and scientists and stuff like that. They're often just seemingly relatively normal people, though actually they describe their state as being very frustrating and slightly impairing. And um, there is some evidence that, that they, they in fact struggle with this condition. And yeah. that gets to the heart of why... In a, in a normal person, your brain actually erases some information, which is that if you, if you view the point of memory, get, getting back to the, the earlier thing we discussed, like what is the point of memory? It's the point of memory is to provide us with information to guide our decisions in the, in the future. Then the vast majority of things that happen to you are not actually 
useful for that purpose. And if you store those things, it's, it's just going to clutter up your brain and, and require more effort for you to kind of sort through things and or identify patterns. And so at the end of the day, the, the reason that our brains probably get up to a lot of forgetting is because that actually helps to further the goal of using memory to make decisions rather than simply using memory to store random mm. information. Yeah, so it's, we seem to be kind of a more proactive moving machine versus just, a, you know, a memory storage system. We're speaking with Dr. Blake Richards about the purpose of our memory, why forgetting may be to your advantage and uh, maybe isn't something that you necessarily need to worry about unless, of course, you're forgetting important things that really matter to you. Uh, up next, we're going to continue the discussion, but also get into the idea of what we can do to, to actually try to remember things that we want to remember. Some tricks, uh, memory tricks ahead if they, if they exist as a trick. Uh, interesting learning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. go, Babs. <laughs> you go. Today we're talking about uh, the purpose of memories and uh, or memory and why it might be okay to, to forget a lot of stuff, actually, because, right? I mean, some things you just don't need to remember and some things you need to use to actually make better decisions. And if you had all the information or too much information, decision-making may be stunted a bit. Uh, so joining us to talk about it is Professor Blake Richards, who's a professor of neurophysiology at the University of Toronto. And uh, he's teaching us that um, really uh, it, memories are a way of transmitting thought over time, right? It's it's just the way to keep a thought stored. Uh, Dr. Richards, thank you again for your time and for uh, teaching us. This is My so pleasure. important. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about, uh, I think we also assume that a memory, and, and help me understand this, that a memory is um, is like deeply entrenched in thought and all of these, you know, um, representations, maybe visualizations. But can a memory just be stored in a feeling? Uh, certainly. I mean, I, I must admit that I don't know uh, a lot about the uh, kind of state of science with regards to emotional memories, but there is. Uh, you know, there are different structures in our brain that are responsible for storing memories about different things. And so, you know, a good example is uh, there's a region of the brain called the amygdala, which uh, is a relatively ancient region of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. And it helps us to store memories about uh, painful or pleasurable things that have occurred to us and, and likely helps us to kind of recall the emotional states that we were in at the time of certain events. So exactly what a memory is can can be multifaceted, and it can be emotion, it can also be the particular sensory experience that we had, or it can just be a very abstract kind of fact about something that occurred or something that we know. Yeah. How does the brain know uh, what it needs to remember and what it doesn't? Is it a learning process that's inherent in us? Is it... Uh, is it just about emotion? What is, I mean, how do we know? Yeah, that, so that's a great question, and it's, it's a topic of ongoing research. Um, we don't know 100% what determines what mem- which memories get forgotten or not. Uh, there's some evidence that 
yes, your emotional state affects that, as does the novelty of the experience. Um, but additionally, there's evidence that things like the extent to which the uh, experience either does or does not match your expectations and your previous knowledge can help determine how well you remember it in the long run. Hmm. So, uh, you know, for, for one of the things that we see in, in general is that the memories that seem to be stored for the, the greatest length of time are what we might call kind of general knowledge or abstract knowledge. That These are referred to in the, in the literature as semantic memories. And these semantic memories are often uh, stored by kind of creating a scaffold with the rest of our knowledge. So you don't just remember, you know, an individual fact like that, uh, you know, whatever the capital of, uh, of, of California is. You, you also relate that to other knowledge that you have about California or other capitals and things like that. And by creating a kind of network of associations, it helps you to store certain facts for longer periods of time. And that's why most of us have a kind of base of general knowledge that unless we begin to suffer from some kind of neurodegenerative disease, we will likely remember for the rest of our lives. Hmm. I mean, it really is. It's, it's an incredible process. And, and then so the brain is kind of anxiously always looking to see, to f- find new information and then new information it's going to remember because it's novel. It's, it, and especially new information that is life critical. Yes, that's right. So that's, that's ultimately the brain's goal, presumably, is to identify that information which is actually critical for our lives and store that stuff in particular. And, and again, generally, um, our brains probably do a pretty good job of it, right? So most of us, for example, uh, again, uh, barring any kind of neurodegenerative disorder, most of us will always remember where our house is. Yeah. We will always remember who our spouse is. We will always remember what our name is or, you know, where to get food. These sorts of basic things that are required to actually survive are things that a healthy person would never forget because our brains do a pretty good job of ensuring that we remember that stuff. Yeah, and in fact, it makes sense, too, why you can be driving home and not think about getting home, but you always arrive home. Well, exactly. And so, so another interesting component of this is that there are, as we were discussing, different types of memories. And one of the processes that we see occur in memory is that as memories age, there's there's often a kind of transformation of them to different brain structures. And what what happens is, uh, in part, is that there is sometimes a switch from the storage of information in a manner that requires a kind of effortful recall on our part to the storage of information in a manner that makes things just a habit for us so that we have certain habitual practices. And driving home is a good example of that or, or you know, our routes to work in general. So, for example, when I go to work, I have to take the subway in Toronto eastbound. And I have a habit of, I, I've now at this point in time, I no longer have a, a memory that I have to force myself to recall, go eastbound to get to work. Hmm. It just happens by habit. And in fact, when I'm then going to a different location uh, in the west end of the city, I have to actively force myself to not go down into the eastbound subway tunnel 
because I, I have to override those habitual memories that have been laid down uh, for the kind of long-term easy access. And it seems like, again, another way that the mind is just trying to be more and more efficient. That's right, exactly. And, and, and efficient, but always efficient at the protection of the whole. Yes, exactly. Efficient at making decisions that help to increase our chances of survival or general yeah. fitness, as it were. What if we um, – there, are there things we can do, Blake uh, – again, we're speaking with Dr. Blake Richards, who is a professor of neurophysiology at the University of Toronto. Are there things we can do, Blake, that, um, that would help us remember things that we want to remember? So kind of to take our memory and make it a little more intentional. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a good question. So part of the answer gets back to that thing I was mentioning with respect to the way in which we store general knowledge. So to the extent that you can kind of form networks of associations with a piece of information, it, it, it becomes more likely that you will remember something for the long term. So, for example, with, with uh, students, say, who are studying uh, for a particular topic or a particular exam, if they actually want to learn the material and not just remember it to the exam, but remember it beyond because it's important for their career prospects or something, then what they really need to do is they need to integrate any new piece of information they get with an entire kind of network of associations of other pieces of information. And if you can make all the things you're trying to remember into some kind of cohesive picture, it's, it's more likely that you'll remember it for the longer hmm. term. So if every one of us, as we're learning something new, could incorporate it into other knowledge, other learning, uh, it, it just weaves it more into the fabric of our memory. Exactly. And you can kind of see that with the mnemonic tricks that we all know anyway, right? Right. Like if you're trying to remember uh, an acronym or something, getting, getting some kind of little mnemonic device where you spell out, uh, you know, what the, what the acronym is in, in a different set of words, some phrase that's, uh, that means something different for you, that, that helps you to remember it because you're linking it to these other aspects of your knowledge. It really is. I guess you're trying to use your whole brain. And I guess that's the power of the brain is that synapses can fire, I guess, all over the brain and the more connections to all different places of the brain. So being physically active, doing it might help, I'm assuming, um, or like having to recall it versus, you know, uh, you know, uh, maybe. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, if you're, if you're actively engaging with the information and you're using it to do stuff, that's another great way of remembering things. So, like, again, if you're, if you're, say, studying for something, you don't want to just read it. You, you want to actively discuss it with other people and use that piece of information to do stuff. It'll, again, become a lot more likely that you remember it. Now, the question of exercise is interesting, though, because one of the pieces of research that led me and my colleague Paul Franklin down this path was actually uh, a finding that came out of Paul's lab, which is that in a, in a region of the brain called the hippocampus, which is particularly important for storing new memories about events that happen in our lives, our, our brains are constantly adding cells, new cells to this, to this region. And the extent to which they, it adds new cells is actually a function and part of how much exercise we get. Mm. So the more cardiovascular exercise you get, the more cells are added to your hippocampus. But what's interesting is that... Uh, what, what Paul's lab demonstrated, uh, quite convincingly, I believe, is that, in fact, the addition of new neurons to this brain region induces more forgetting. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, 
rather than yeah. rather than causing you to to remember things better it, it actually helps to erase some of those previous memories of things that have happened to you and 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 that was part of what got us down this path is because you know at first glance that seems counterintuitive but when you step back and you realize that the purpose of memory is to help you make decisions and most of the events that occur in your life are not going to provide information to help you make new decisions then this this process of erasing old information actually comes to be seen as a, a beneficial thing and the fact that exercising uh you know leads to the generation of these new cells and that can induce some forgetting makes a bit more sense interesting yeah it may, maybe healing can take place by forgetting right exactly exactly and not just healing but also just the, the erasure of useless information yeah. right so you know i mean it's a funny thing we all remember relatively useless stuff <laughs> i certainly remember far too many commercial right. from my childhood uh, and it's possible that, you know, if, uh, with, with uh, sufficient exercise and sufficient kind of growth of new neurons in the hippocampus, some of this junk gets cleared out. Oh, that's interesting stuff. Well, Blake, we have to, we'll have to have you back. I really want to spend some time uh, next time on talking about artificial intelligence and memory. And um, I know you've got a great insight on that. We're, uh, we appreciate you. Dr. Blake Richards, thanks for your insight. Again, he's a professor of neurophysiology at the University of Toronto and a fellow uh, of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Man, okay, so it's okay to forget some things. Just not the big stuff. And even forgetting, you know, clears the hard drive a bit, gives you some space to to make different decisions. Ah, So much to remember and so much to forget. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, when you think about memory, um, it's it's maybe it's not so bad you forget stuff. Yeah, there are certain things you'll probably want to forget. <laughs> like I don't, I'm glad I don't remember every minute of my commute. You know, really? Yeah, I'm glad that I go on autopilot and take little naps for you know microseconds. Not at the wheel, though. Mm. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm not worried about it, but the people next to me in their cars, they're always honking. I don't see the big deal. These, isn't it interesting though, you can be driving, what, a 5,000 pound vehicle at 75 miles an hour and you don't remember doing it? Yeah. That seems like something you'd want to remember. I'm grateful there are certain movies that I can't remember. Oh yeah. I don't, they're just experiences that I would prefer to forget. It's so true. And one of the rules I have is I try not to invest much time in certain things. Like, like I don't that you always ask me to like yesterday, Tom Petty. I don't remember, but I wasn't a big music fan as a kid. I, you know, I just I'd listen to it, loved it, but never. I don't think I ever bought a record until I was an adult. Really? Yeah. I don't think I bought any album that wasn't a Weird Al album. Yeah. See that that explains a lot of stuff. <laughs> But the memories, we make them because we, we drive them in deeper. I'm worried a little bit about how technology is altering our minds quite a bit because now they're even saying we don't even remember uh, taking the selfie 
You don't remember having the great moment, you know, at uh, some amazing historical park, the Grand Canyon, because you spent so many time, so much time taking pictures of the Grand Canyon that you never actually had the memory yourself. That's why you just take it in or you leave it up to somebody else to take the picture. So yeah. you can just enjoy the moment. That's right. That's what my wife always says. But then I forget. She always says, take some pictures when you're doing this thing today. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And then I forget that. Well, and I think motive is important, too, because how many people are taking the photos because they actually want to capture the memory and go back and revisit it later? Or do they want to portray themselves as having this amazing life and yeah. they put them on Facebook? You know? I went to the Grand Canyon. Don't remember anything about it. <laughs> That's just a. It's kind of just a big blur to me. I remember I posted about it. Yeah. Well, let me go back to my post and see what I posted. I mean, that's what's sad is: are we so caught up in our tech that we we don't create the memories? We don't even have the memories. Anyway, let's watch out for that. Okay. We don't need no need no need to to create problems. There is one thing you're not going to want to forget today, and it is Taco Day. Epa! It's rain and tacos. Yes, it's rain and tacos today, folks. Tacos are the Mexican equivalent of a sandwich instead of bread. How about a hard or soft tortilla? And then you just put your nice little spicy fillings. Num, num, num. This song is going on my iPhone, by the way. I'm sorry. It's raining tacos, folks, and uh, we're celebrating it today because it's taco day. So get out there. Go buy, you know, five tacos for five bucks. Mmm. Sounds like lunch is ready. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us, folks, as we celebrate Taco Day all day long. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here with Terry South and Jeff Simpson. Hey, hey, hey. The gang's all gathered together. And today we are celebrating Taco Day. You are not going to want to let up, folks. No burritos, just tacos. No. No. Nothing. Terry loves nothing more than Taco Day. Tacos are the perfect food. By the way, and we haven't we haven't talked about this for a while. Terry every day has a taco salad. I do. Really? It's pretty amazing. Every day. To just walk us through your taco salad, um, you know, uh, fiesta. My fiesta? Mm-hmm. Your well, lunch fiesta. It's taco in the sense that there's, you know, like some uh, ground beef in there. There's some cheese. Yeah. But do you do salsa. chips? Oh, no. You just make a salad. You just, you just make there's a salad. No, there's no chips in the salad. So, Okay. So it's that's it's, what I said. It's like it's my own thing I do. But so it's a it's a okay. It's mm-hmm. a salad with ground beef and salsa. But you tell him about a sombrero. There's no sombrero. He wears a sombrero every time he eats it. I just make this basic taco salad every day. You know, I've always every day. I've always wanted one of those uh, nacho sombreros. Nacho sombreros. He wants to eat chips out of a hat. Or yeah, the hat itself is edible, oh, yeah. is the chip, yeah, yeah. Is you know, chip? and you just tear it off a little bit at a time, and then uh, 
Yeah, your head is transparent afterwards. You you have a very simple life, and I mean that with all love. In, with all the insults you could possibly. No, imagine. no, no. Because oh, really, sorry. because if I give you, if I just give you nachos or tacos, or just chips, sorry, nachos or chips, and a burrito the size of your arm, maybe mm-hmm. a cheese adjacent product, some kind of fluid cheese. Yeah, and I put you in front of a movie. Your life is set. The chips could even be stale, and I you wouldn't hear a complaint from me. See, that That's is gross. Honestly, that that is a great gift you have, because like, and even What's, Terry is eating the same salad yeah. every day for what five years? Pretty much, yeah. That's almost that's almost a ketogenic diet. It almost like is. no carbs. I yeah. guess there's probably a little carbs in the lettuce because sure. he's he's that healthy. Terry is that healthy. No, I'm. I when I, when I figure something out that I like, why not just keep doing it? And then at the time we were doing something, my wife wanted me to. I hate preparing food. Yeah, me I too. need to go in, get my food, and sit down. I don't yeah. want to. My wife's like, let's make a sandwich, and then she pulls out like fifteen vegetables. I'm like, what are you doing? That's too much work. Meat, bread, mustard. Let's go. <laughs> she goes, that's not a sandwich. I'm like, okay, fine. Different ideas. Yeah. So I, I found something that was easy. I could replicate it. I don't have to think when I go home. I just do it. I know I'm not eating something horrible like I want to. Yeah. No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, really, my... It doesn't get old. I, I enjoy it. I never it. can eat anything. And I mean, I would. I really would. But I don't... I don't... I always eat something different every day. Really? And I've, I've probably passed the stage of wanting chips anymore. I don't even want chips. Wow. I've been having the same meal every day, too. What? Salami, cheese, uh, raw broccoli, oh, and maybe some peanuts. That's my lunch. It sounds... Unless you're trying to, uh, you know, get us at a certain weight before a weigh-in. And then it's just water. I just had a mango yesterday. That was it. <laughs> water. Did you meet your weigh-in? Did you meet it? Did you... Did you... Oh, I have until Sunday or Monday, and I've got a little over a pound to go. Well... Good job. You just cut off a toe at that point, right? Yeah. Okay. Just lose a toe. <laughs> Why you not? Know, case of last resort. <laughs> Say it's like Saturday late and you're like, ugh. Which toe is the first to go, by well, the way? Well, if it depends how much weight you need to lose. That's true. If you need to lose a, maybe a half a pound, you might need to take the big toes off. Apparently what I've heard is the big toe is probably the one you don't need. Really? Uh, out of all your toes, that's the least useful is your big toe. I'm taking the tall toe. Because that's the one my wife yeah. makes fun of. That one's weird. If you have yeah. one toe that's like yeah. a little bit longer. But have you seen Jeff's tall toe? Really? It's like it's like four inches longer than yeah. the other toes. Yeah, that's a little weird. It's a little strange. Yeah, you may need to just chop a little bit off he there. He always just cuts a little hole in all of his shoes and it just pokes out. Yeah. it's kind of yeah. <laughs> Just trim a little off the end there. But it, is, it is a really interesting talking point. You can whittle that down, right? Yeah. I remember the first time we interviewed him. First thing I noticed, Jeff, so your eyes. Second thing, your toes. People are so polite, too, when they ask me about it. They're like, hey, do you mind if I ask you how you got that freakishly long toe? Do they use the word freakish? Yeah, but they're so polite. It's pleasant, though. They mean it in the best way possible. Well, they, they, start, they say, do you mind? So they're asking for permission first. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. My, I just gasped. I remember Don's like, don't gasp. That's rude. And then I say, hello, I'm up here. Yeah. Eyes up here, please. 
<laughs> Eyes up here. Okay, uh, happy Taco Day, happy Long Toe Day, if you've got one of those. Yeah. we got a lot to cover today. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what should we be focusing on? President Trump hucked rolls of paper towels into a crowd of Puerto Ricans on Tuesday like he was taking basketball jump shots, as it was described. Delivering, however crude the method, badly needed aid to the locals, many of whom are still without electricity or drinkable water after Hurricane Maria. In addition to throwing paper towels to Puerto Ricans and complimenting local officials for not recreating Hurricane Katrina, Trump also visited some hurricane victims' homes. We have a good house. Thank God, one Islander told Trump, showing the president the damage. In the meantime, here you are, Trump observed, adding, we're going to help you out. Have a good time. Have a good time. Yeah, have a have a good time. Were they at Disneyland? No, they were in his house that remained standing after the hurricane, with no water and no power. Yeah, take luck. There's just nuance. There's just a little nuance. (laughs) He tried the behind the back pass with the paper towels, probably with that guy under the leg. Just seemed a little out of place. Let's see which of you two can grab these. I always hate it when they take the politician and put him in the line, and he hands out a few things for the photo op. Or you got to do that. You go out and you clear some brush for five minutes, and it's like. But they need to show him with his arm around people, hugging them, saying we're sorry, but we're here for you. You've got the full backing of the United States government. The fake idea like this world leader is out there like mowing a lawn. I mean, come on. Right. He's not doing that. He's there for other reasons. Do you think he said, you get paper towels and you get paper towels? (laughs) It would have been fitting as he was just like lobbing jump shots into the crowd. Oh, that's funny. It looked like he had like, like it was like a t-shirt cannon, like a t-shirt type giveaway. (laughs) He's tossing things like free to the crowd and they're all like crowding up with their phones and kind of a weird situation all around. (laughs) Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock wired $100,000 to the Philippines last week before committing the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. NBC reports the receiving account is his living girlfriend's uh, Marilou Danily's home country. Authorities have confirmed that Danily was in the Philippines on Sunday night when the Vegas shooting occurred, but it's still uh, unknown if the money was meant for her. She was originally considered a person of interest in the investigation, but officials have since said they do not believe she was involved. She's free. Like, she returned back to the U.S. last night. She's not under, like, house arrest or anything like that, but they want to stay in contact with her, they said. Yeah. Because she may have... More information. Well, like, I mean, why like, did he do this? Well, and people are still wondering: Was he somehow? Did you notice the forty-two guns in your house? Yeah. Did that worry you? Uh, at what point is it a little unnerving to see that many bullets in one room? What did he talk about? Did he make the bombs in the garage? Yeah. What's he doing? He had cameras on food carts in the hallway outside yeah, the so hotel they, room, uh, the, and and then I guess some cameras inside. He to... had a camera on the peephole so he could like look at a screen and see down the hallway. He was really prepared for this. Wow. How did she not see any of this? That's kind of the questions yeah. they're going to ask her. Uh, investigators plan to question her when she returns, which she did last night. Uh, also, other records show that the uh, shooter also gambled with at least $160,000 in Vegas casinos over the past month. Really? So, I mean, he's been hanging out. As his brother said, my brother has a lot of money. He likes to go to Las Vegas and gamble. That's kind of what he said the first day. So. Yeah. And the brother keeps talking. He probably should stop talking. Yeah. Because he doesn't really know anything. Right. But people want to, if he keeps talking, people are going to show up because really there's no other information. This right. is the time you just need to. <laughs> it's like this. No comment. We we'll talk to you. Yeah. See you later. We we love. We're sorry for the victims. We're out of here. Yeah. 
So, oh well. Uh, other news, internet registration records show that shortly after it became public that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump set up private domain and correspondence with White House colleagues using personal email accounts. Those accounts were immediately rerouted to computers run by the Trump Organization. This out of USA Today. Oh, so, so they had their private email accounts, but once those went public in the newspaper, all those accounts got rerouted to the Trump Organization instead of a personal server. Okay. So they were... They were doing something they weren't supposed to do. Once Maybe. everybody found it out, yeah. then they just rerouted them because it's safer to send them to Trump. Cyber Cybersecurity experts and lawyers are questioning why they did this and if any employees of the Trump organization might now have access to emails about official White House matters. Because as you reroute it, now other people may have the ability to get in there and look around at the... The whole point is you're doing White House business on non-secure email right, accounts. Right, I mean, And non-governmental email accounts, which is what you're supposed to do. But now, let me just ask you, yeah. is this is this a big deal or a little deal? It wasn't a big deal for some when Hillary was doing it, but for others it was a huge deal. And now that it's the Trump kids doing it, yeah. is it a big deal or a little deal? I can't. Um, I believe it has to do with who's in office, so not a big deal. Is it like is it like Jeff's long toe or is it like one of his short toes? Maybe a short toe situation. Okay, not a long toe situation. A former federal prosecutor uh, interviewed by USA Today says this certainly creates the appearance of potential impropriety. Yeah, I mean again, which is I think a lot of the things plaguing the Trump administration is they quickly do something and then don't right. talk about it anymore and it looks bad. Yeah. They might be completely innocent, but the fact that they move quickly and try to make sure no one sees it, even though everyone just saw it. It looks bad. But you didn't see what you think you saw. That's what they say. But, of course, by the fact that you tried to do something sleight of hand, it looks yeah. bad. Yeah. Other more positive notes. Uh, for social media editors, the worst nightmare is accidentally posting something personal on a work account. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. when I'm doing stuff for the show, my account's right there. I just click a little uh, tab and it flips over to the Matt Townsend show Twitter oh, versus boy. mine. I've had yeah. a little problem Is that, that why that knife collection came up on well, my Twitter feed? It, it happens from time to time. Yeah. So I try to police that as best as I can. Uh, on Monday night, NPR's swing editor Chris Dean Hopkins lived the nightmare when he posted about Ramona on NPR's Facebook account. Is Ram- who's Ramona? Well, hold on. It says Ramona is. He, this is what he posted. Ramona is given new toy. Smiles. Examines for twenty seconds. Discards. Ramona gets a hug. Acquiesces momentarily. Squirms to be put down. Ramona sees three cats thirty feet away. Immediately possessed by shrieking spasmatic joy that <laughs> continues after cats flee for their lives. That Ooh. was my favorite book growing up. Ramona. Ramona. Uh, sounds like a bad date. <laughs> so that's what this uh, NPR swing editor posted. Uh, Twelve minutes later, after realizing his mistake, he edited oh! the post and replaced it with, "This post was intended for a personal account. We apologize for the error." Well, because the NPR boss has called and said, "Who's Ramona? What is this?" He goes, "We don't generally delete posts, so I tried to do it in a way that would be transparent." He said, "My job is to promote our good work." And I catastrophically failed in that last night. You know what? Beautiful. He made a mistake, handled it, moved on. That's great. But what Hopkins didn't anticipate is how much people needed something to feel good after back-to-back-to-back-to-back tragedies. Las Vegas, Puerto Rico, Florida, the Texas Gulf Coast, and hurricanes and all that. Ramona, who isn't quite a year old yet, was the the feel-good thing. Yeah. Now there are Ramona hashtags of... Hashtag Ramona updates, hashtag bring back Ramona, and hashtag Ramona forever as she got friends 
And like the Houston Zoo sent like some cuddly animals saying, "Hey, Ramona wants some more cats to play with." Except they sent like leopards and stuff. So that's kind of kind of weird. But but um, people need something. There's a petition calling for an updated story about Ramona and demanding a small raise for Hopkins because apparently he's working overnights and. He has a, a young Ramona to look look Cute. after. At least two hundred fifty people started uh, tweeting all this stuff, and they they got on the the uh, the what the uh, petition for a raise for the father. There, the verdict is still out on whether there will be regular Ramona updates. <laughs> he goes, I suppose if people keep promising to pledge to NPR, because that's how they generate. He goes, I'll continue to you know see what we can do about Ramona. You'll start using Ramona to raise money. But it says, here's the news everyone really wants to know: Ramona is not the cat. And he posted this picture oh. of his daughter who's oh, with the cat. Oh, cute! So it just kind of <laughs> turned into this thing where a bunch that's of people beautiful. were like, I need something positive, that's and beautiful. a little kid playing see with that? the cat. There you go. We call that an emergent property, out of trial and difficulty and beautiful light of Ramona create this wonderful rainbow that now everyone can eat Skittles from. And, d- and dad didn't get fired for messing up on the social media account. That's cool. Yeah. By the way, that's the way – see, I think everybody would get that kind of um, respect if but he owned it. Yeah. You just got to own it. Instead of delete and it never happened. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love it. Ramona. And we're already getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, response on the response toe. on the toe thing. Right, they're calling it Tomona. Tomona, interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want more toe updates. Yeah, mm-hmm. how's the toe? How's the toe, Jeff? Is the toe doing all right? It's a little itchy. A little itchy on the toe. Well, there's your toe update. And red. I'm not sure why. Do you know what you call it when um, Jeff Uh-oh. hits the toe against one of the steps? What's that? As he's coming up into the building, toe jam. Mm. Ah. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for working in the joke there. Did you hear that? Oh, here um, we got another one. Go ahead. <laughs> did you hear that there is a new character on in Star Wars mm. that uh, has a longer middle toe than like Jeff? Wow. It's called Toby Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I kind of thought that was where you were headed. You know, I went out to my car and I saw this big streak along the side of my car. You got keyed. No, oh. I got towed. You got towed. Uh. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> All right. Well, that was good. I'm glad we suffered through that together. Totally. Totally. Do you want one more thing to suffer through? Oh. Sure. Well, today we have a very special edition of the MT News. The MT News team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. So today we're doing MT News Mad Libs edition. Hold on. Mad Libs or Matt Libs? Yeah, okay. If you want to brand everything, sure. uh, Let's polish his ego here. No, I wrote wrote it. So we have a couple (laughs) of stories. We'll see see what we have time for. Um, So you're actually going to be surprised how close you are on some of these. Are you serious? (laughs) So I, I thought of this because they're weird stories, and I wanted to see if what you came up with was weirder than the actual story. Yeah. So Santa Fe... A New Mexico man is facing charges after police say he blank and you wrote was shaking jello. Yeah. And then stole the man's you wrote jello mold. Yeah. Before dashing away. Santa Fe police arrested 25-year-old Anthony Frazier on Sunday where authorities say the bizarre attack occurred. According to a criminal complaint, the victim says Frazier walked up to him to you wrote jiggle, then steal his jello. The victim says Frazier then 
jiggled his belly. So I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. And ran from the scene. Police later caught up with Frazier and arrested him for jiggling after the victim identified him as the alleged jiggler. He's the jiggler. So here's the actual story. Okay. A New Mexico man is facing charges after police say he randomly slapped a customer mm. and then stole the man's green chili cheeseburger before dashing away. Well, by the way, I was thinking of green jello. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Santa Fe police arrested 25-year-old Anthony Frazier on Sunday, where authorities say the bizarre attack occurred. According to a criminal complaint, the victim says Frazier walked up to him to dance. Mm. Then, so you put jiggle, yeah, so thing. dance. I mean, you can dance and jiggle. Yeah. Then slapped him across the face. Yeah, jiggled him. The victim says Frazier then stole his green chili cheeseburger and ran from the scene. Police later caught up with Frazier and arrested him for robbery after the victim identified him as the alleged burger Boy. thief. See? I could pretty you were much, close. I could write the news. Well, you just did. Yeah. I think... Uh... I've got it. I think I have a career in this. The next one's even better. Should we can we, we can do save it? it. Yeah, we'll save it until after the interview. Yeah. We got a great interview coming up. Uh it, we're going to revisit an interview with Dr. Amy Cuddy about body language and how just how you position your body through your just posing, you know, standing up straighter actually induces a sense or a state of confidence inside of you. She's a Harvard professor and a, a well-known TED Talk speaker and one of my favorite interviews. We're revisiting it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What if you could strike a pose and feel more powerful or more confident? What if it could help you with a job interview or a test or a simple nerve-wracking conversation? Well, a few months ago, I spoke with uh, Dr. Amy Cuddy, who is an associate professor at Harvard Business School. She explains how to use body language to uh, create the confidence and deliver at our highest level so we can feel good about what we've done and what we need to do. We began our conversation talking about when she was in school at Princeton as a grad student, and she felt like a fraud. Yeah, when I started at Princeton as a grad student after, you know, having had this head injury and barely making it through college, I, you know, you know, it took me four extra years to finish college because of the head injury. So I did not think I belonged there. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to keep up with these people. And it's just a matter of time. You know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, like waiting for the other shoe to fall um, for them to find out that I'm, that I would, you know, I was an admissions mistake. Mm. I think a lot of people feel, yeah. uh, have, or, or that I was a hiring mistake. You know, these people are smarter than I am. So it was definitely a, a state of mind that I inhabited for a long, long time. And it, it, it forces, it, it kind of takes you hostage and makes you avoid challenging situations because you're, you're, every challenging situation when you feel like an imposter is a potential opportunity for you to be found out by other people. Mm-hmm. Right? So as long if, if you're exposing who you are, somebody might come in and go, oh, she's a phony, we're kicking her out. You know, so, so that's how I approach, I think, everything. Um, and, you know, my advisor sort of pushed me at one point when I was about ready to quit out of fear to sort of fake confidence. Now, she didn't say it exactly like that, but she was saying, look, you have the knowledge 
it was it was the night before I was giving a talk to the department. She said, "You have the knowledge. The thing in the way is just your confidence, and so you're going to have to fake the confidence part hmm. to yourself, and and uh, and give the talk. And it's probably not going to be great, but it's going to be fine. It will be competent, and it will get easier every time because the more you do it." easier it becomes we all know this this is true this is the way life works right the more you do these challenging things the easier they become and so eventually it wasn't like a you know magical overnight thing but years down the road i looked back and went wow not only has this gotten much easier for me but i actually like giving talks now and i never thought that that could have happened (laughs) now now you're killing it the idea right is it yeah is the yeah. body you you in a lot of the research it really is the body will naturally bring you a sense of calm or a sense of confidence by just simply how you present your body that is right. so, part of the premise yeah so it's it's true that what you know when you lack confidence and you feel powerless just like other animals you start to make yourself small physically you contract, you wrap yourself you know, up, up, you wrap your arms around your torso, you touch your face or your neck, you cover your eyes, you, you, know, you, you sort of pull your knees up to, in a fetal position mm-hmm. when you're really scared. When you feel powerful, you do the opposite. You expand and take up a lot of space. And so although those are outcomes of feelings, they also can be causes of feelings. So when you're feeling the stress or the anxiety, the imposter syndrome before, uh, you know, a challenging moment, you're probably, your body is going to naturally collapse and make itself small. You have, you have to fight that. You have to make yourself open up. Hold your shoulders open. Breathe deeply and slowly. Move slowly. You know, if you need to hold something in your hand to keep your arms expand, you know, extended, mm. do that. Because all of those things are signaling to your brain that you're not in a threatening situation. And it, and it doesn't matter. It, collapsing. Right. I guess that doesn't matter. Yeah, like you're saying, it, it, whether it's cause or effect, it doesn't matter. Your body's going to respond appropriately. Right. Yeah, the body and the mind are constantly in conversation. And, you know, we, we tend to think of it as humans. We think that the body is following the mind, that we decide to do something and then we do it. The thing is, Often the body's leading the mind. So one of my favorite quotes uh, is from William James, who's the first American psychologist. He said, um, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. Hmm. So his idea, and he had many quotes like that, but was that I do things to change the way I feel. You know, I change my body so that I so I can change the way I feel as opposed to the opposite. So it, it, it works in both directions. Yeah. But we tend to neglect the body-mind direction as humans. And I think partly it's because it's, uh, it, 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 it makes us feel primitive because sort of that's the way animals are, mm-hmm. and we're animals as well, but we don't want to think of ourselves as primitive. So we like to think that we can think our way out of anxiety. And we're actually really, really bad at doing that. <laughs> yeah. We're much better at giving it over to something else. That is so, it's such great advice. What, um, and just research, I think. Again, this concept of confidence, imagine how much more we could all elevate our game, our lives, our sense of peace, 
by 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 just understanding a few basic principles as we as we as we wrap up today give us what's one more thing if there's one more thing we can do to remain present if there's one more thing we could do to increase the ability to be confident and leave our you know let our leave our music to be played um what what is that one thing that makes the biggest difference Oh, well, I'm not, I don't know if it's the one that makes the biggest difference. It's hard on the spot to yeah. come up with that one. But let me just give you one little nugget that I think we, is useful to most of us. We are constantly hunching over our phones. And, you know, we're holding them and we're, our shoulders are slouched and our chins are down. And we are adopting the posture of a depressed, <laughs> sad, powerless person. And that is really bad for us. By opening up, you know, don't, you've got to get yourself out of the habit of doing that. So set reminders on your phone every hour to check your posture. Make sure you're holding your phone in an upright position. Set up your workspace so that it allows you to stretch out, to reach for the mouse, you know, things like this. Get up and walk, walk, walk around during the day. All of those things are going to trigger effects in your mind that will make life much easier. Mm. I, and it's, I feel it. I feel, the, I feel it that way. It's... There's power in um, in in us and in our bodies. I I so am excited to to get uh, more into your work and find out more about what you're doing, Dr. Amy Cuddy. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, honestly, the minute you started talking, everyone sits up in our office now. We all just oh. <laughs> we all we're all sitting up straighter. I mean, somebody's still doing the the Wonder Woman pose, and we wish he would stop it. <laughs> Um, that's good stuff. Dr. Amy Cuddy, everybody go look up this book, uh, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Great, uh, great insight in life. Uh, we're going to take a break. Come back, my friends, and wrap up this first hour of the show. Again, remember the goal of the show is to help you uh, live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. What better way to start it than with presence and confidence? Thanks to the work of Dr. Amy Cuddy. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Talk about good. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. You know, what if you could strike a pose and feel more powerful or confident? What does your smile say about you? And uh, what if you could, you know, in a job interview, just simply produce or position yourself in a better way so you felt more confident going in and not even just more confident going in, but that you you gave off a better impression of confidence, feeling better, having others sense that you're more confident. That is the power of some of this uh, nonverbal and body language tools that our next guest has been researching extensively. Her name is Dr. Amy Cuddy. She's an associate professor at Harvard Business School, and her popular TED Talk, Your Body Language Shapes Who You Are, has over 30 million views. It's one of the top-viewed TED Talks, and we're honored to have her on the phone. She joins us now live from Boston. Dr. Cuddy, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much for having me. Great having you. I loved your TED Talk, and I love this topic. We've had people come on the show before and talk about like power poses, which is a big part of, I know, that TED Talk you did. But your research is, is, is a lot deeper than just a pose, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, and I, that's you know what I what I talk about in my my new book, Presence: Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. So that's really the the work that I've been that I've been thinking so much about lately. Uh, and certainly, you know, holding a certain pose for a couple of minutes can make you feel better. But I think that understanding the deeper principles of the self and uh, how we behave in situations that seem threatening versus uh, situations that seem safe is really useful to understanding how to bring our best self to those stressful situations. Talk to so us about really what this book is about. Well, and talk about it. How, how did how did you get into it, Dr. Cuddy? Because it's I mean, you're at Harvard Business School and but this is about influence, really, right? This is about your confidence and your ability to influence and get results. Um, it's funny. I wouldn't actually say that, even though I, I, I think I started uh, from from that point. Um, what I learned through kind of the process of writing the book and, and looking at this huge range of, of research is that what really it's about is leaving these stressful situations feeling that you've been seen, hmm. feeling that you showed people your true best self. So your, you know, your, your sort of kindest self and your strongest self. And if you leave these situations like job interviews feeling that way, you can live with whatever the outcome is. Now, the funny thing is that the outcome is actually likely to be better. If you leave feeling that way, you probably also performed better. So they're not unrelated. But to me, the focus is much more on a quality of life dimension that's not just about winning. Yeah, that's right. About knowing that you've represented yourself. Because how many times, yeah, does that happen where we feel like, uh I was so off. Oh, I just exactly. wasn't myself. And this is so you're saying yeah, well, I it's more have said this two minutes ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and just knowing you you left it all there and it, and you did all you could. That's right. I mean, that's that's really what people want to. That's that's what gives people a sense of peace and satisfaction when it comes to these big challenges. You know, they just yeah they even and it could be something like. Um, conflict with a family member, people, which, you know, really isn't about winning. People just want to feel that they, they, uh, that they were seen and that they saw the other person accurately and that the, there's a sense of peace and understanding when they leave that situation, hmm. right? So there are just so many situations that aren't about a concrete outcome uh, of winning and losing. And, uh, and even ones that are ultimately are really more about knowing that you did your best. Well, and it seems like to me, if inside of my head, I'm going to use these, uh, you know, kind of these skills to to manipulate, not that's a bad word, but to, to close the deal or to get my win, it probably will influence how you see me. Yeah. In fact, I mean, the, the, you know, one of the things I say is that people spend so much time thinking about the impression that they're making on others. And they don't manage the impression that they're making on themselves. And by focusing on impression management as, you know, if I act this way, they'll think this of me. It just, first of all, you know, it's a little bit inauthentic, well, it's definitely inauthentic and dishonest. Yeah. But that's not even my biggest problem with it. My biggest problem with it is that it's just ineffective because people cannot manage all of the, first of all, you don't know what they think of you. You know, and you, you should not ever try to adapt who you are to what you think someone else wants. You know, you should you, you need to be true to your core values. And, and when you feel confident and powerful enough to do that, you are able to reveal that true self. 
so by managing, worrying, not, not even worrying, but by focusing more on how we see ourselves, knowing who we are, knowing our story, believing our story, we're much more compelling to other people because they then know that they're seeing something real. Mm. When people know that they're seeing something that's forced or faked or choreographed, you know, they don't like it as much. They don't find it convincing. There's some visceral reaction that tells them, I don't totally trust this person. And if you've lost them at trust, there's no way you're going to influence them. That's huge. And that's a big part of I know what you teach, that trust is like, I don't know, I can't remember what you call it. It's like the currency. It's the... Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the conduit of influence. That's it's a like, conduit. Like the medium through which ideas travel. It's Without it, you could have the best idea in the world and no one is going to hear you mm. because they don't trust you. If they, feel they, they, if, you, if they feel that you're not being authentic and that you haven't taken the time to understand who they are, they see your, any strength that you have, like a great idea, isn't a gift. It's a threat. Right. You know, it's, it's not something that they're open to. It's, they, they don't want to hear that from you until they know that you have their best interests in mind. Huh. It's, it really is. It's kind of a subtle the, – it's the conduit. If, and if we don't get it, then we go in and we fake. And it's almost like we learn this – is this just inherent human nature that we learn to kind of fake what the crowd wants us to be? So be fake. Um, Where do we learn I that? Think, well, I think that we're taught that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of you know, a lot of the sort of leadership books and books in the sort of self-help genre for a while were focused on, you know, how to influence people. And it was it was again, it was very much the focus was on um, manipulating some aspect of yourself to influence people or, or to exploit some characteristic of other people to, to influence them. It was also sneaky and Machiavellian. Yeah. You know? And uh, I, so I think we, we learned that in a very explicit way, at least in Western culture. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we're born wanting to do things that way. Yeah, you think you want to just be you, why, right? And part of why it doesn't work is because I don't think it's in our nature to um, you know, try to manipulate every aspect of the situation to our advantage. Hmm. It's just, it's not natural. Is it? I mean, it, it's, I look at my young kids, 10-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and I think, because, you know, they're all, they are all kind of now in the, thrown into the midst of these gamesmanship and social weird thing. Like, hey, dad, I got to have these I shoes. I got to have these shoes because these shoes will make me I more know. obviously in the group. Where, where does... I mean, where does that come from? I guess the same thing. That's really, yeah, it's really tough. I, I, I mean, I have a 13-year-old, and I, I think he's very self-aware, but of course he's, you know, he's still susceptible to those things too. Sure. We do talk a lot about it. You know, what, is it really what you like, or is it what you think somebody wants? And, you know, will you feel like yourself if you wear them? Like, what happens with him often is that he'll say, it doesn't really feel like my style, and so he ends up backing down from buying, you know, wanting to buy this this pair of shoes. Yeah. Because he realizes that even if he wore it, he would feel phony, and he hates feeling phony. I I think most people do. I think he's particularly in touch with that. But but I think most people don't like feeling phony. And certainly, kids are learning this. Um, I'm not sure that they're learning it at a younger age, but I do think social media speeds things up. It's you know. The, the the amount of 
feedback that you're getting from other people, that what other people think of you mm-hmm. is happening just at breakneck speed now. So imagine like a child trying to be him or herself, but they're Snapchatting with, with somebody. And, you know, if they don't hear back from them in four seconds, they think they've been rejected. Or if they don't get 100 likes on Instagram in the first minute, they think they've been rejected. There is an enormous amount of information, feedback information that they're taking in from other people and then trying to adjust to match that, whatever that expectation is and to, to exceed what they did the last time. But it, nothing is about self-reflection. Huh. It's all about what they're getting back from other people or not getting back from other people. There's no time for them to sit and be quiet and think. It's really sad. (laughs) It's really troubling to me. Your book, Presence, I mean, being present, I'm assuming, and being in the moment would would enable, would enhance our ability to self-reflect and to to evaluate the data. That's right. Or Or to say that this data that I'm getting in from other people... Um, it, so here's here's one thing that happens. So when we're present, so when we're able to, you know, the way that I think of it is you are you are a, you are in tune with your best self and able to bring that best self forward in a confident and comfortable way. You're not feeling threatened. So as a result, your brain is open to hear what's actually happening, and not necessarily what people think of you, but just what they are thinking in mm. general. And so then you can respond not to what you worry might be happening, but to what is actually happening. So one of the greatest teachers I've had, I said to her once, when did you realize you, and she, you know, she, she teaches teachers. She's a fantastic teacher. And I said, when did you realize you're a great teacher? And she said, I knew I was competent at this. Like I, you know, I knew that this was not something that was hard for me, but the moment when I knew I had switched from a good teacher to a great teacher was when I was in class and I realized that I was no longer worrying about what they thought of me. I was just paying attention to what they were thinking. Hmm. Right? So it wasn't, it, it wasn't the self-focus of what do they think of me. It was well, what do they think about the material and what about this material is you know, resonating with them or not resonating with them. And so that's about being in the moment without fear is there, or, or at least with courage. When we have that kind of courage, it frees up our working memory which is the part of memory that integrates new information with old information and allows us to respond effectively. When we're present, working memory is much, much more available to us. We become more creative. We become just generally sort of less anxious and less threatened. We become more optimistic and confident. Uh, We're more likely to see challenges not as threats but as opportunities. It's just this cascade of good things. When we're feeling present, and 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 if we can, that is wow. That's like yeah. that. That's 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 the deal maker in all of life, right? That makes that would make our love better. That would make our our studies better. Our confidence, our relationships, our our everything we do would be at a higher level just when we get over ourselves. That's right. And, you know, sometimes I say sometimes we have to get out of our we have to get get out of the way of ourselves so that we can be ourselves. Yeah. You know, we, we, it's sort of like we're the ones. It's our 
it's our sort of ruminations and, you know, uh, one, one thing they call, they call it post-event processing. So after you leave a situation and you can't stop thinking about it, mm-hmm. what you should have done differently, those things get in the way of us being present in the next moment, right? So we're so frustrated that we weren't present in the last moment, that now it becomes a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. Yeah, you know, that all day. Self-reinforcing just... cycle. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we've all done that where we then sat up and we thought, oh. I didn't even answer that person's question. You know, have yeah, you ever done exactly. that? Like you just realized oh, five hours definitely. later that you just walked away without answering. Yeah, the question. you did. Or you did. Yeah, you answered the question you wanted to answer uh-huh. instead of the one that was actually being asked. And yeah, I've, I've had that happen for sure. I, oh. I, I, you know, it's not like you ever get over this completely. You just learn to do it better. And I think that's another really important part of the message. It's that no one ever reaches some permanent you know, monk-like state of presence, not even a monk, because monks are human, and humans cannot be present all the time. Yeah. Some people are, you know, work at it uh, for a long time and are able to spend more of their lives in that psychological present moment, but most of us are going to be distracted. Thoughts are poking through, you know, other duties are, you know, calling, and it's just, it's just, sorry, it's very, very hard. I'm, it's very, very hard for us to be, uh, yeah, to, to, to be present all the time. So yeah. we, need, we really need to focus on the next moment. So we need to focus on the moment in front of us, not on uh, a moment a year in the future. Or, you know, we, we can't have these big, long-term, abstract goals that are focused on what we want to rid ourselves of. We need to focus on, you know, the process uh, that we're going to be involved in in the next moment. So let me mm. just give you a quick yeah. example. Um, one of the, you know, I, I get thousands of emails from people, and they tell me these stories about their challenges and how they how they interacted in those moments, how they felt when they left, and you know, most people walk into these situations with dread. And they execute them with a kind of anxiety, and they leave them with a feeling of regret. And I want people to not leave with that feeling of regret. So this young man, his name is Will Cuddy. He's not related to me, mm. but he's a young actor in Oregon. And he, his agent called and said, you need to try out for this role in a feature film. It's going to be filmed in Oregon, and um, they want a young, outdoorsy guy, and you're perfect for the role. And he thought, there's no way. Like, I've done a couple of acne commercials as a kid. You know, I'm not ready to do a feature <laughs> film. So he goes, but he's confident as a person in general, and that's important. It's, it's, this book is not for people who are never confident. It's right. for all of us who have these moments of self-doubt. So he gets there. He looks around the room at the people in the room and goes, oh, no way. Like, there's no way that I should be here. And he immediately is flooded with self-doubt. So he, uh, he says, I remember that my friend told me that if I ever get nervous, I should stand in a bathroom like Wonder Woman for two minutes and it would make right, me feel right. better. He said, I, knew no, I, I had no idea where it came from or what, why it was supposed to work, but I did it. And I came back out. And, you know, of course, he's referring to the power posing research. Right. He looks around the room and now he sees these guys not as competitors, but as just other humans who are in the same position he's in. You know, who are who are striving to do well um, and who are probably feeling a little nervous, too. So he goes into the audition and feels that it's one of the most, you know, happy um, sort of 
liberated, fun moments of his life. He just enjoys it so much. He thinks, you know, I'm not going to get the role, but wow, what a cool experience to have had. You know, this, and so he's engaging with the director and the casting people, and he said it was the best audition of his life. So he leaves, and his dad says, his dad's there, which I think is very sweet, and his dad says, how'd it go? And he said, I nailed it. <laughs> and his dad said, of course. He said, so you got the role? And he said, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no. Great. I just, right, so he, he almost forgot about the outcome. That's it wasn't great. about a New Year's resolution. It wasn't about the concrete outcome. He was so in the moment that that was the sense of satisfaction that he had. Now, he, of course, got the role because he was he so killed in the it, yeah. And the movie, you can actually see him in the movie Wild. He is one of the young hikers that she meets at the end of the trail. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, and he even gets a credit. But that happened not because he was working so hard to be his very best. It, it happened because he was able to be present. Right. Oh, Amy, this is awesome. Let's take a break. I, I want to come back and have you teach us m- more of how our body language, like that's a great example of just doing our body going into like a, the power pose, for example, naturally will set us up to feel some more power. And I want you to give us more tools to do that. Dr. Amy Cuddy is joining us, author of the book Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. She's, uh, she's helping us uncover how to be present and, and really in our power, in our confidence, so that, so that we can leave the best on the table and not walk away wondering, oh, I blew that or thinking we had blown it. We're going to come back, continue the discussion. We're also going to come back and talk about that feeling that most of us have every once in a while where we just feel like a fake, where we feel like a fraud. She's got some insight into that that uh, is so powerful. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Welcome back, friends. Uh, McKenna Baus in the house. And uh, McKenna always comes in to do a little mind bender with us. She likes to stretch our brains, our synapses. That's, that's what I enjoy. And today, believe it or not, you are going to try to sell us on the idea of maybe a wood car. Yeah, so not Pinewood Derby cars, but your regular day-to-day car you drive around, having it be made out of a lot more wood and a lot less steel. Really? That sounds crazy. Yeah, you know, first you hear it and you're thinking, like, one, how is that going to be strong enough? Yeah. To why. <laughs> why? Where do we get all the wood? It seems yeah. like we'll run out of wood. And so what they're doing and sort of, you know, to get the whole vision of it is the idea is cars are a lot better on the environment and when they're lighter. Yeah. The lighter the car is, the better gas mileage it gets. And wood is a much lighter alternative yeah, to there steel. You go. And so what they're doing is they're taking wood and they're grinding it up into this pulp. Yeah. And then they fuse that with these special kind of plastics to oh, where it's this okay. like yeah. weird wood plastic mix. Poly so it's not wood polywood thing. Yeah. Where it's not a, you know, solid oak door. Yeah. Um, but it, it's this, you know, combination of the materials. And it is ends up being just as strong as steel, but eighty percent lighter. Holy cow. Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of like those decks, those Trek decks. Similar, yeah, where you get that, that combo of the materials. But then, then the, basically all of the 
the structural parts of your car that you don't normally see would be, you know, Hollywood. Exactly. Which, by the way, also made some great movies. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, that's Bollywood. Um, <laughs> so Pollywood or whatever. That's my invention. Um, it would make the cars lighter. It, and they're already efficient, more efficient fuel-wise, and they they could become electric. So then they're yeah. really light and powerful. Yeah, and like we said with electric cars, that's another reason why they're looking at doing this. Because a lot of the focus has been on big SUVs, things yeah. that are already quite heavy, trying to trim down the weight there. But they're also looking at applying it to electric vehicles so you get to go farther on a charge. Because that's been something that's really that's been right. holding yeah, back. You can't just transition. have more and more batteries, right? You exactly. need to have more efficiency. Yeah, because a lot of people, their big roadblock to getting electric vehicles, they get really worried, like, will I be able to make it to where I'm going? Mm-hmm. And if my car runs out of power, well, I can't just hook it up, you know, fill it up with gas. Yeah. I get stranded. And so by making these lighter, they're hoping to address that issue and help ease people into that transition. Well, and it seems like an, a car accident wouldn't be you know, two 5,000-pound vehicles hitting, it might be two 1,000-pound Yeah, vehicles. and so there's definitely a benefit there because it's just as strong, so mm-hmm. it's going to protect you, but, you know, less heavy, dangerous materials rushing yeah. in on you at the same time. And if you get hit by a wood car, it's, it, it, feels, it feels like you just ran into a tree. Instead of I mean, I've seen what happens when truck. cars run into trees, <laughs> yeah. so I don't know if uh, that's yeah. all that... But that's but it, but it is but it is it's also recyclable and then probably even I mean this is kind of cool too because I mean I'm not thinking motorhomes for example have wood in them yeah and they're not very light <laughs> but no. I mean it seems like you know if it served the purpose and with all the polyfibers and stuff that might be cool yeah and so there's definitely you know a potential market for this and it's in the you know testing yeah. stage it's and it's in you know it's an alternative to things like carbon fiber which right. have been um moving up and have been being used in cars i know um BMW recently released a car that has a you know carbon fiber yeah. but what happens when you have a woodpecker when you have termites now taking your car away you'll have to get insurance for woodpeckers uh oh oh well McKenna Baus Baus in the house a little mind bender for us wood cars what will they think of next this is the Matt Townsend show you're listening to us on BYU radio This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry South and Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Hey-o. hey <laughs> And uh, Jeff made a big announcement. Actually, Jeff, Jeff didn't. Jeff didn't. We did about his his toe, his long toe. Mm. If you missed it, you're going to want to go back and find that segment. It gets bigger if I'm telling a lie too. <laughs> Every time you tell a lie, that toe grows just a little toenail, just a little nail, just a little longer. Oh, that's gross. It's the middle toe, uh, and on Jeff, it's it's like it's. A lot longer than the other toes. Like, what, a couple inches? At least. Yeah. So go back, go to iTunes, go to TuneIn, go to Stitcher. You won't want to miss that. It was a really interesting discussion about toes. It's actually toes. my pinky toe that my wife makes fun of the most. Really? Because it's so much further down than all the other toes. 
Ah. So it's like halfway down my foot. <laughs> like 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 what? It's coming out your heel? Almost. That's a weird foot. <sighs> Some things you don't want to think about. It is Halloween soon, so maybe on the thirty first. Even better I'll than take Halloween. Off the shoe. Do you know what it is today? It's taco day. <gasps> yeah. Today's the day we celebrate tacos. And sure, Jeff's got a little toe further down his foot and a middle toe that sticks out hmm. about two inches longer than the other. But it's also taco day. There's a truck somewhere. Oh, yeah. A little taco truck. This is the day you maybe you, there's still – do certain locations still offer like a taco for a buck? Yeah. So you can get five for five. I mean, how much is the tortilla with some meat and cheese and a little, you know, sauce on there? What does that cost? Twenty cents. Twenty cents, maybe. Yeah, but what if they're in a truck? Ah. Hey, what if they habla en español? Well, if it's in a truck, they call it gourmet, even though they made it out of the back of a truck. I love tacos. A little weird, Al Yankovic. Taco Grande. Isn't Taco Grande a singer? No, that's Ariana Grande. Yeah. Different. Rico Suave is a singer. Yeah. That's what this is based on. Well, he had a song. I don't know if he <laughs> sang the song. He was a little pretty to be a, a singer. Do you know what Rico Suave means in Spanish? Uh, Rico Suave. Rick Suave? No. Suave. No. Suave Rick, because sometimes you have to flip the words around. Rich is Rico. Suave, smooth. Mm. Rich smooth. Yep. Rich smoothness. Do you know what taco grande means? Uh, yeah. Big taco. Heartburn. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it means. I'd like a large on my taco, please. Thank Can you. Can I get a little taco grande con rico suave? Mmm. I'm starving. Um, we got a lot to talk about today. Apparently, um, a headline-wise, again, we got to go back to Las Vegas. Amazing yep. stories of heroism. I don't even like talking about the shooter. I didn't want to give him that credibility. But, you know, they're finding out crazy stuff. It was very well prepared. And uh, his ex, his his friend, his partner, not spouse, his no. friend, They're, they're his referring to him either friend. as partner or girlfriend. Yeah, is now is has flown back and was lovingly greeted by the FBI at the gate. There's accounts at um, different establishments in the Las Vegas area, casinos. Yeah, this this man was a professional gambler. Right, by at one, at one time accounts. won a four hundred thousand dollar right pot. Oh, forty thousand dollars. Forty thousand. And then he there was one point where I guess he slipped and fell. And oh then tried to sue one of the casinos. That was one of the stories I heard. Oh, boy. Um, hmm. There's accounts from different uh, shops in the casinos where he would walk in with his girlfriend and then yell at her. Oh, wow. Kind of belittle her and stuff. And he's like – and so hmm. like he was kind of a jerk. He was a troubled, thing. troubled dude. Other people said it was great because he was kind of this big guy and she's this little little woman type thing, yeah. you know. And so it was kind of a an odd pairing. That was kind of – you know, so there was like a – some people thought it was great. Other people saw a different side. It just uh, there's no real evidence of what happened. So people are kind of trying to nobody knows grab. I guess the guy worked for the post office at one point, and then he was a real estate investor. IRS. He worked for the IRS. Worked for a uh, airline manufacturing company. I think at some yeah. point Lo- so, was it Lockheed or somebody. Yeah. Um, but in the end, no matter what, uh, as as this all comes down, he's he's got his issues, whatever. But there are, and they they say the police say we will know. We'll figure this out. There's probably enough evidence. There's going to be enough that we'll know why he did what he did. Um, 
However, the the real story are in the heroes that stepped in and, and helped save lives and just didn't even help save lives, but some of them just provided comfort as others were passing away. Um, amazing stories there. And even just some of the police. Now there's video of released about uh, the police and the cameras they're wearing so you could get a feel of the chaos on the ground. It's just an incredible story, and it's one of those stories that I, I believe will just go down in history as do you, where were you when you found out about the Las Vegas shooting, you know? It's pretty big like that. Like it it brings a lot of emotion hmm. to the – I mean kids are talking about it. People are talking about it at a level I haven't seen for a long time. Or it will get washed away like all the other shootings. Well, what will, well this is this, – I will. It will. What yeah. will happen is – and you can already see it. Politicians will start to muddy the water, mm-hmm. to start creating a lot of smoke. And there needs to be some decisions made. But if I'm a betting man, based on what? Sandy Hook, the, the nightclub shootings yeah. in Florida, uh, guns – it's not going to change much in guns and um, – and so maybe we need a f- different way to discuss this, right? Like Mad Libs? We could do Mad Libs. You guys were doing libs. Mad Libs earlier. Is that the proper <laughs> way to discuss? No, no, no. no. Okay. no There's probably a better way. But maybe what could happen is uh, maybe what we ought to do is just have everybody listen to the gunfire repeatedly firing mm-hmm. nonstop, what, 30 seconds at a time. For, and he went for about nine minutes of shooting. A, a bullet firing every second. Maybe just let's listen to that and let's just figure out how much of that we need to hunt. Now, I get it. People are afraid that if I – I can't give up the right to have that, so we're going to fight for that. But we don't need that. No. People don't need that. You don't need these – you don't need certain things. So, you know, silencers, do you – I mean, we've already got ear protection, so – you, maybe you don't need a silencer. Yeah. I don't I know don't, what he would yeah. have done Con- with a Congress, silencer. Congress was going to consider a bill on silencers. They've postponed yeah. that with silencers. For reasons. And again, it makes sense. I, I would wait really for a while for stuff to die down. But then, but then all you have to do is listen to the audio yeah. of that gun firing mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over, and you realize. I mean, like you were saying yesterday, if if he only had ten shots before he had to reload, right? Now he had. 23 weapons. Right. But if you had 10 shots to reload, you might have a chance and that was, in between to do something. That's what they tried to do after Sandy Hook is let's reduce the number of bullets you can put in a clip. And yeah. then that reduces someone's ability to, to how right. much damage they can do. Yeah. Right. But that got shot down because that's infringing on your God-given rights, I guess. The, some of the <laughs> argument was there. It's like, really? Yeah. Okay. So this is the debate that's going to happen. But again – there is something very universal if if we took people, God-fearing, gun-loving people, and just let them listen to the sound mm. of 10 minutes of nonstop gun firing with reloading of 20 seconds in between, then make the argument. Hmm. It's cray-cray. Maybe. So uh, big decisions. But – and and again – it. it too, there's rights, right? And you don't you gotta you gotta be careful with infringing and impeding on people's rights as well. So we'll of course get to, to some of that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, otherwise ATF. known as the ATF, said on Tuesday that officials recovered 47 firearms from three separate locations tied to the mass shooting in Las Vegas. 
They got the 23 that were at the Mandalay Bay, the 12 that were at the guy's house, and then there was another location where they got the rest of the guns. Yeah, he had, they had like a Reno home. Yeah, he had another... Yeah, apparently he had several. Well, apparently a home in homes. every gambling location. Well, sure. In Vegas. As, as we I talk. mean, in Nevada. Yeah, his brother said he was a professional gambler. It's what he did now. He just. I mean, it makes sense, right? Sure. Reno, mesquite, just you're on the tour. Police said that the shooter planted two cameras in the hallway outside his hotel room in order to watch for the police when they arrived. He put them on uh, some food carts. And uh, I saw the press conference with the uh, sheriff of Las Vegas yesterday, and he, he praised the. Uh, the media, because they apparently have better information than his report. His, uh, or that was information only known to the police, and the reporters knew it. And he goes, "I should hire you guys as my investigators because you're doing a better job." Apparently, so yeah, we there were some cameras, and they were on the food carts. Oh wow! So mm. he, he confirmed it with a reporter who found which, out about which it, which is probably the way that the guy got shot at the door. The security he knew guy. he was there. Yeah, it says an additional camera was on the peephole of the door, so they could see down. He could see down the hallway. So he wow. set up his own little surveillance system. He was there, and he wasn't going to get caught. And uh, as we talked about, his, the, the shooter's girlfriend has returned from the Philippines, and she'll be questioned by the authorities. In other news, President Trump downplayed the Puerto Rico crisis Tuesday, observing that the death total in the country was just 16 people, as compared to the thousands killed in Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Every death is a horror, Trump said during the visit to the island. But if you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina, and you look at the hundreds and hundreds of people that died, and then you look at what happened here with the storm that was really totally overpowering, nobody ever seen anything like this. And what is your death count at this moment? He kind of looks around, 17? And then someone in the back goes, 16! And he goes, 16 people! Oh, boy. You can be very proud of that. Only 16 people he versus just, thousands. He should have just stopped at every death as a horror. Yeah. yeah. That's all. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Uh, the governor of Puerto Rico updated the death count to 34 around 8 p.m. last night. Despite widespread criticism of the White House's response to Puerto Rico, where 95% of the territory remains without electricity and most people without drinking water, two weeks after the hurricane hit... Uh, Trump said Tuesday morning that he gives his administration an A-plus for its response. <laughs> but that doesn't work that way. No. Right? Because history will give, the, give their grade, but the people of America will give a grade, and, uh, and, and, it'll, and then it, fake news will give a grade. It'll split like the election and go 50-50. Yeah, always. <laughs> yep. Yahoo.com revealed on Tuesday that Yahoo. all 3 billion Yahoo accounts were affected by the massive 2013 hack. They recently gave a number less than the uh, 3 billion. It was everybody that uses Yahoo was a lot affected. Of, a lot of people who use Yahoo were affected. They said that initially only 1 billion accounts were affected. The company required, uh, the company required all users who had not changed their password since the time of the theft to do so. As Yahoo said in its account on oh, their security boy. webpage, Yahoo also invalidated encrypted security questions and answers so they cannot be used to access the account. The hack exposed users' passwords, dates of birth, along with other sensitive information. Uh, so if you have anything on Yahoo, you were exposed what to if, What if you that. did it one time, yeah. but you can't remember it? But you know you used to Yahoo. Lots of people have that problem, and yes, you're in there. And uh-huh. there's also, you go and try to uh, re- remove your account, remove your information. Mm-hmm. There's no way to do it, apparently. Isn't there um, Isn't there a southern version of Yahoo called Yeehaw? Could be. <laughs> I think I was on that, too. Could be. Um, other internet uh, waste of time website-related news, Facebook is briefing news publishers on plans to support subscriptions through instant articles per a source familiar with the proposal. Now, if you're on your phone and you open an article, there's a time where the screen just slides over 
Like there's, it's instantly there yeah. instead of going to the website of the whatever the. Uh, oh. the mm-hmm. So they set it up that way. So basically, you're still on Facebook reading the content rather than going to like the website of the news website right. or whatever to read it. So they do that because it's faster, more user friendly. Well, now what they're going to do is they they have set up a thing where you just click on it and you get it. It's free. There's you know no questions. Now they're going to set a limit of say like you get four of those. And then the next one pops up and it's asking you for subscriptions. Wow. On your Facebook. I mean, I, okay. Because I, they're trying to, they're losing, uh, you know, pub, public, publishers are leaving Facebook, not being as ingrained in it because they're not making money. And they feel like Facebook's taking that advertising opportunities and the money from them because of this instant article thing. Right, right. So Facebook's trying to keep them around by instituting this, okay, after the fourth article or whatever the number will be, then then you can put up a, an advertisement for a subscription, and that's how people get your, your content that way. Huh. This so, is this is a battle that's going to – what is, what is Facebook in, going to protect? Right. The advertiser or the people? The user, yeah. So what do you think that's going to do like to the individual that first sees that? That the website you've always been able to go to, now you can't because... I already do it. So any of them that have... And you see more and more of them that now have this paywall thing mm-hmm. where they're counting how many articles you've read. They Those I, those frustrate me a lot. Mm. I mean, I want free... I want your goods for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. We've had these why things have for I free. Not, why would I need to start paying for it now? And now they're starting to put a paywall in and, and they find that uh, that cuts the audience. Then That's I, why it's not the complete yeah. paywall. Like, say, the Wall yeah. Street Journal, you can't get any of their articles. Yeah, they, I really don't like them. But um, but they've got great stuff. I'm just right. cheap. But you, if you don't have the subscription, you can't get it. Where, like, the New York Times, there's yeah. like a 10-article counter Harvard or something. Business Review, I think yep. it's like four. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep thinking my counter must be off because I think I've been at three Right. I, I, I get three a week. and See, all of that should be for free, though, because if you don't get it from the New York Times or, you know, the Wall Street Journal, you get it somewhere else. Maybe what – it's right. Maybe what you ought to do is they ought – but then you get teased on these some of these other sites, kind of the blog posting sites mm-hmm. where it's just a, a bunch of blogs or a bunch of sites. I get mad because I want to read that story and I can't and they get, get to it. The website will give you a paragraph kind of summarizing, yes. hey, if you want to read more. Tease. And then They're you click teasing, it and they want yes. money. Yeah. So that, okay. there's your future, Matt. You won't be able to get any information. It'll all want 10 bucks from you a month. Well, the reality is they're not going to get it except uh, from the big fans, right? The big yeah. fans will give them the money, but is that enough to actually keep them alive? I don't know. But let me, can I just, let me just suggest to any of you all out there listening. Yeah, okay. All the editors, all, all the, the editors, publishers. Just know that many, many times we have guests on our show from your articles, mm. and we resource and cite your articles, and we talk about your company. So you probably ought to give every journalist or faux journalist um, free access. That's oh, yeah. great. But then they hand it out to their family, and then it just gets out in the wild, and they lose control of it that way. Yeah, my kids wouldn't read the Wall Street Journal. Really? No. Okay. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> no. No. They won't even read. Yeah. I don't know that they read. Really? <sighs> it's crazy. Hey, um, let's uh, – do we have time for empty news, Jeffrey? Because we, we do. I, we really have – one of the things we've been trying on the show is to do some Mad Libs or Matt Libs. Yes, but it's not. Matt it's libs. not – but it's only Matt, Matt Libs. It's only Matt Libs today. Tomorrow it could be Terry Libs. That's true. Or Jeff Libs. Yeah. Or just the Libs, which is a liberal newspaper. So, again, you might be surprised at how close you were to this actual story. Okay. So here's the story with your uh, Matt, Matt Libs inserted, okay. right? An argument over 
you put tacos mm-hmm. at a Florida hair salon, led to the arrest of a 28-year-old man for bad conversation. Yeah. According to the sheriff's office uh, arrest report, the man took six chalupas and eight tacos. Yeah, he was hungry. And ate them mm-hmm. in front of her. Mm. When the victim told him he needed to slow down, he demanded a haircut. She asked him to move away from her, but he refused. Other patrons stepped in to defend her, and he tried to fight them, uh, the report said. That's so a here great story. is the real story. Okay. okay. An argument over stolen bacon. Ooh. So, you're, so instead of pork, you yeah. put a, a beef product. Yeah, totally. At a Florida waffle house. Oh, so close. Led to the arrest of a 28-year-old man for disorderly intoxication. According to the sheriff's office arrest report, the man took bacon off of a stranger's plate and ate it in front of her, just like you said. See, I knew it. I could feel it. When the victim told him he needed to replace the bacon, (laughs) replace this bacon. I want my bacon back. Replace this bacon post haste. I want my bacon back, bacon back, bacon back. He He demanded more food. Oh, yeah. She asked him to move away from her, but he refused. Other patrons stepped in to defend her, and he tried to fight with them, the report said. Oh, this is – see? This is a fun game. Yeah. And I, I've done this long enough that I feel like I can kind of channel the story. I mean, the last story I didn't get because it was a lot about Jiggly Jello. <laughs> but this one I felt I was more in tune on. It's fitting, though, because we have some of these stories every once in a while where Mad Libs are just as plausible as what the actual story is. That's right. And let's just be honest. I've never lived in Florida, which is where most of these stories come from. That's true. So I have a disadvantage. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll continue Mad Libs. Uh, but uh, up next, we're going to be talking about cohabitation and uh, what it really does. Is it is it just like marriage? Is it kind of a little trial marriage? And what does it do to the kids? What does it do to the likelihood of a marriage succeeding? Straight ahead with Dr. Brian Willoughby. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. We're joined by Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and we love having him on the show because he he helps us take like real life scenarios. For example, cohabitating, remarrying after uh, you know a second marriage or a third marriage or fourth marriage or you know right twelfth marriage, what have you. Yeah. And Brian's going to walk us through um, just some of the latest research. Brian is also, by the way, the author of a new book that's out, The Marriage Paradox. Um, which um, you can get. It's 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 very academic, but very good. Yeah, and best of both worlds. Best of both worlds. It's like it's like a Snickers bar. Yeah, it's all chocolatey on the outside, but just full of rich caramel and nougat. Right. So, uh, Brian, welcome. Good to have you. Good to be here. And uh, you're in the midst. You're in the throes of school. I mean, you got students, and you have big classes. Yep, we're right in the middle of it right now. Is right in a, the middle, almost midterms, uh, about a week away. Yeah, that's why that. the kids. That's why the students are zombies. That's right. A lot They've of got that dead look in their do. eye. That's so weird. It's yeah. like, how do you get that dead look? And they're like, <laughs> we just take classes. Um, talk to me, Brian, about um, cohabitation because, and we've talked about it on the show before that cohabitation. A lot of people think it's like it's like practice marriage. Right. We're just going to live together. Right. But. There, the the research doesn't show that it, it actually there's there's myths about it right. that need to be blown up. Yeah, 
Blow them up. Okay. Well, one of the the biggest myths about cohabitation has to do with the stability of it. And actually, one of the myths is that it's a replacement for marriage. We 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 believe because we see cohabitation everywhere now. It's in movies. It's in TV. Yeah. It feels like everyone's doing it, which the, which the data suggests that most people are doing it. But that leads to this myth of, well, marriage is on its way out. Yeah. And cohabitation is going to replace that. But what the data also shows us is that cohabitation, cohabiting relationships still remain highly unstable. Do they really? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so this is, for most people, not a long-term replacement. It's, it tends to not be a long-term relationship for most people. But is it because, is it because people that cohabitate don't commit? or it, So it is a commitment problem? Is it, or is it just like, I mean, I guess we assume that, oh, let's see if we like each other. Right. Let's see if... Let's get all of our ducks in a row right. first. But why isn't it as stable? Because most people don't actually intend it to be a long-term relationship when they go into co- a cohabiting relationship. Some people, like you said, yeah. are testing things out before a marriage. But even more increasingly common now is people are, are in their 20s and even maybe their early 30s and saying, I'm not sure if I even want to get married yeah. right now. I'm not sure if I want to get married to you, but we're committed. We've been dating for two years. So let's let's. This is just the natural next step in the relationship. And I guess it it is efficient. I mean, right. you realize you could cut some costs in half. Right. In fact, there there was a couple studies that suggested that the most common reason why couples cohabit with each other, the decision to actually move in, is pragmatic. Yeah. They look at it financially right. and say, "Well, you're paying a rent, and I'm paying a rent, but I We're spend six nights a week with you anyway." Yeah. Why are we doing that? Let's That's share so costs and, and my lease was up and so let's let's move in together. But it's different saying let's move in and, and, and not have a contract right? versus having let's commit and say right. we want to spend the rest of our lives together. Right. And that's, that's the key difference. If you think about a marriage, regardless of what kind of ceremony I have, there's this sense of permanence yeah. to it, right? As we, we are committing to each other for our entire lives or as long as our love shall last, however we're thinking about it, there's still this sense of – I'm now with you long term. With most cohabiting relationships, like I said, there's not that same sense of permanence. It's it's it works right now. It makes sense right now. Who knows what next week or next year is going to bring? And so that that mindset is is what we think is part of the instability issue because it does then affect the commitment level. Right. Is that I'm going into this relationship with this sense that at any point I don't like it anymore. If at any point something better comes along or something changes my life. Yeah. And it might not even be about you. It might be I got a job offer across the country. Oh, true. And so now I'm in a relationship that it's really easy to pull the plug on. And I know that in the back of my mind at all times. What about um, cohabitating with children involved? Like to me, this is – this, especially if it's less stable, to to do it when you have kids around, like even that example you just gave – Let's say the man uh, is living with a woman and her three children, and he has a new job offer in California, but she can't necessarily move because mm-hmm. their father is in town. And right. how do we just pull every- – so what, what, what does the data show about that? This is actually something that me and my colleagues are, are, have been talking about for about the last decade is one of the biggest actually crises in families right now yeah. in the world. Um, in fact, there was a, a research brief that came out about five years ago that suggested that cohabitation has now replaced divorce is the biggest um, concern we have as family scientists really? about children. Yeah. And it's because of this issue, because we know cohabiting relationships are very unstable, but we know that more and more couples are having children in these cohabiting relationships. And so we have more and more kids that are exposed to instability. And we yeah. know there's decades of research that shows that instability with kids is a bad formula. 
bad. So, so okay, but we're not just because you know this is BYU and mm-hmm. we are very pro family, and right. sometimes people think you know that old Judeo Christian ethic <laughs> of just stay married and be married is. It's just old-fashioned. But right. you're saying, no, the data doesn't show cohabitation. It's actually less stable. Mm-hmm. And then getting together in a cohabitated relationship and having kids just puts kids in a less right. stable situation. Right. And like I said, we know that that instability – it's the same reason we have decades of research about divorce yeah. and the negative outcomes for kids. It's not necessarily because they're seeing mom and dad fighting, although that's a part of it. The big reason why divorce has such a negative impact on kids is because of the instability because now they're moving houses. They're moving back and forth all the time, different schools, different yeah. friends. Now there's remarriage and dating and all these adults in my life, and now there's maybe attachment issues going on. And and we're basically seeing the same sort of thing happen with cohabiting relationships. Now, we don't track them like divorces right. because it's not a divorce. It's just a breakup. Yeah. And we have no census data. Yeah, we don't have legal obligation. There's no legal obligation. But we can see the numbers that suggest that more and more of these kids, like I said, are in these relationships that oftentimes don't last more than a couple of years. And so oh. now you've got these kids that are in a similar post-divorce situation, but it was with mom and dad just living with each other. And I guess those parents might be more likely to go cohabit again. Right. And again, so they go through three or four live-in role model dads or parents. And sometimes the conflict is even worse in these situations because unlike a a divorce where there is oftentimes least a more standard legal procedure, sometimes custody issues can get even more complex with cohabitation because <laughs> there True. there was certainly legal precedent for the biological parents, right. but there wasn't a legal standing. And so now custody and visitation can get a little bit more tricky. Absolutely. No, and I've, I was a divorce mediator and I saw a lot of that where mm-hmm. – what does the what does the man that came in as the second as the husband that then pretty much raised the kid but has no legal right to the kid mm-hmm. but has spent ten years fathering him right doesn't necessarily have a right right and the kids themselves they see this right they see the instability yeah they see the uncertainty about parents and who's in charge that usually leads to just a lack of structure yeah in their lives because because naturally if if I've got mom over here and dad over here and then these two three other adults in my life. Well, who who's in charge? Who makes the rules for me? Well, and and then the big thing I keep hearing too is attachment and attachment disorder. And right. now they don't know who to attach to. Who's right. safe anymore? Right, exactly. Because what I'm learning is that the people that are most important, that I love the most in my life, my parents growing up, I could never rely on them. And so now I'm going to carry that into my adult relationships oh. and say these people that I feel this love towards – I don't know if I can trust them because that's what I grew up with is I didn't know if you're going to be here, if you weren't, if you're going to be in the home, if you weren't. Unbelievable. And again, we just throw it out there. Like, oh, yeah, they're just they're just living together. Oh, right. and you won't believe it. They're living together and they're, they're having a baby. And then. Right. And that, that's the disconnect is that a lot of the, the arguments, like you said, for cohabitation are, well, it's, it's just two consenting adults. Yeah. It shouldn't matter. We're all adults. Marriage here. is just a piece of right. paper, which, which on the adult side, maybe a lot of those arguments have some validity, but we forget about the kids yeah. that are involved and all these issues that these are causing. Well, and there's research being done. I mean, this isn't – this is research. This right. is – you're validating your concerns. This right. isn't just feel good. Everyone has rights. Right. No, this is – yeah. And it's something Data-based. we're seeing globally too, not just in the U.S. Interesting stuff. Let's continue the discussion after this. We're going to be talking more with Brian about second marriages, third marriages, how you should proceed going forward if cohabitation isn't the best option. I mean, uh, as far as the data is concerned, what would be a healthier way to move forward into a second marriage, especially if you have kids 
doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby, is with us. Uh, You can find out more about Dr. Brian Willoughby's work by going to drbrianwilloughby.com and uh, hit more on his book, The Marriage Paradox. Today, he's talking to us about uh, cohabitation Um, and kind of what's happening apparently then, Brian, is it sounds people are becoming more and more individualistic, it sounds like, and it doesn't seem like... um, Kids, I mean, kids are kind of like an afterthought. Like the, right. the reason children are wonderful isn't because children are inherently wonderful. It's because they serve my per- – they're my right. child and they give me what I want. Right. Exactly. So the, there's a sense that most people still want to become parents, oftentimes to maybe one, maybe, maybe two. We'll see yeah. how the first well, one is. Well, and to have the experience. I mean, right. they the want to have the experience. Pass on my genes. Have that, you know. <laughs> la, la, have, la, Have all the positive parenting experiences. Yeah. But there's still this very much this sense – that that kids are this net negative in our lives now, that they are going to get in the way of all this fun and all this travel that you can do. Um, Time magazine um, a couple years ago did a big cover story on this, and they, the, the picture on the cover was a young married couple lounging on the beach on vacation, and it was talking about how this is what we want our relationships to be like now. Yeah. It's travel and fun, and kids just get in the way. Well, you can't take them. I mean, even they're so young. Oh, yeah. And the young ones are the easier ones, really. It's the toddler. Mm-hmm. Once they can walk, right. they ruin all the trips. Yeah. And talk. talk <laughs> and once talk. they're talking, yeah. oh, yeah. Um, talk about remarriage mm-hmm. because um, that that is a big problem. And, you know, not to quote Dr. Lara, but one of her big points was don't remarry. You have kids. Until your kids are gone, don't remarry. Right. Don't mess up their life because you have this need to remarry. Right. And I always had some issues with that. Right. But it was kind of a nice point that put your kids first. Right. What's your advice as a scholar in this field? Yeah. And what about remarrying? And if you have kids, how do you do so safely for their benefit? Well, I wouldn't say don't remarry yeah. because um, remarriage can be really positive. If and, be- and healthy for the kids. Right. Because it – it provide it can provide more stability. It can provide that other adult to to manage tasks in the house and and do. I mean, being a single parent's hard. Oh, well, there's research that shows that being single parent is hard for adults and for kids. But there is some concern because we also have research that suggests that second marriages are more unstable. They're at a higher risk for divorce than first ones. Now, the nice thing though is that if you understand why, yeah, you can help avoid some of those things. And and one of the biggest things with kids is that you do have to be very aware of proper boundaries when you start to re- when you start to date again. Um, and what I mean by that is that what can be really hard for kids is if they see this rotating door mm. of men or women coming into the house, being involved, this kind of serial monogamy where they see mom or dad kind of cycle through, that that can be really hard emotionally for kids because then as a child, especially young children, it's do I attach to this yeah. person, do, do I, I not, yeah. now they're gone. And again, it can just perpetuate these issues we're talking about. And so what that means if I'm, I'm dating after my first marriage for whatever reason is that I probably do need a little bit of distance between that part of my world and my kids, at hmm. least for a little bit, until yeah. I'm pretty sure that this is a committed long-term relationship and a viable potential marriage partner. Then maybe I do bring them in. 
to my kids' lives in a limited way yeah. a little bit to see what that interaction is like. Because yeah. I, I want to know yeah. what that person's like with my kids. That's important. Um, but maybe for that even first couple months, it's pretty limited. Yeah, because I I do want to make sure that I'm not having, like I said, that rotating door. That right. that's one big piece. Um, the other big piece, and this gets a little bit away from the kids, but is also really important about this remarriage piece, is one of the most common problems we see in a remarriage is because I was married before, or because I was in committed relationships before. I think I know how to do it. In yeah. other words, in my first marriage, I didn't do any cooking. I just did the dishes. So now in this next marriage, I'm assuming that you're going to do all the cooking and I'll do the dishes. Well, yeah. what if my new partner doesn't like to what cook? What if they're not a cook? Maybe they were the dishwasher yeah. too. Now you got two dishwashers. And now because I'm just assuming you're going to do it, <laughs> yeah. we start to have some conflict. And so I, you have to approach the new relationship just like you did your first one, which is you have your first date. You have the new relationship mm. where you're getting to know each other. Yeah. You, and you have to go through all those progressions just like you did the first time. Sometimes in the second marriage – there's this desire of, well, I, I want the marriage, again, only better this yeah. time. So I yeah. want to jump really quick a month into this relationship into the marriage-like relationship. And we push it really fast. Right. Well, and then meanwhile, then you add the complexity of children. Right. And each of those children have relationship issues, plus mm-hmm. they're growing up. Right. And they're going to have inherent jealousies. Right. And dad was better. Right. I like dad better than Larry. And that's that's the other big part is you've got to be really – open with your kids and communicating. A lot of parents are really hesitant because they feel like it's awkward for their kids. So yeah. they, they feel like, oh, I can't talk to my kids about my dating life. I can't talk to them about this. And like I said, you want those proper boundaries, but you should be talking about once you progress to that committed relationship about, hey, here's this guy I'm, I'm bringing home and here's what I'm seeing and, and here's what the boundaries are going to be. He's not dad right yeah. now. He's mom's boyfriend. Yeah. And so I'm still making all the rules. I'm still in charge. He just wants to get to know you a little bit. We're going to create some situations where he can, and then I want your feedback on how you, you know. Yeah. So being really open and communicative about that, and then if it does progress to, hey, we're going to get engaged and we're going to get married, now let's all sit down together, me and my new spouse and the kids, and talk about what this is going to look like and mm. what are going to be the rules. And again, oftentimes the mindset is it's not going to be like what it was with dad or mom before. Right. It's we're building a new family now. Yeah. What's this new family going to look like? And it and he doesn't. I mean, you could even discuss. He's not replacing your dad. You're right. going to have your dad. Your mm-hmm. dad. Your dad. You don't even have to call him. He's not dad. Right. He's. But I I I've seen it where having. Having uh, a healthy relationship that works is really beneficial for the kids, especially right. if you can get – if your parents are going to divorce anyway, but to have two of them health in a healthy relationship right. moving forward, it gives you something yeah. to model. Yeah. I, I always tell the students in my class when we talk about divorce that you can certainly have extremely healthy relationships for everyone and it can be really great for kids. You've just made it a lot harder. It yeah. was easier back when you were married in oh, yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and now that you're divorced, you still need to do all the relationship stuff you were doing before. That's right. It's just a little bit more difficult and you've got more people involved. And I'm assuming go slower too because right. th- you've already been through a traumatic one that took you years to, to figure right. out. Yeah. Now go slower. There's right. no hurry yeah. here. But everything in you says, let's hurry. Let's get right. this. Let's get yeah. – you, you do – there is some truth to the rebound effect here. Yeah. That you do want to avoid this idea of I've been in this bad marriage or this bad covenant relationship for five years. And so now that guy down the hall at work or that guy down the street, he's going to be so much better than what <laughs> I had before. So I immediately want to jump into that. Relationship. Get into that. Right. Not a great idea. You're right. Slow and steady. And maybe make sure you're 
not as it's not about independence. It's about being interdependent. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All those same good relationship traits that you need. Man, good stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. You can go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com, and go check out his book, The Marriage Paradox. He's with us every couple of weeks to pick, and we just pick his brain. Just pick it, pick it, pick it. Uh, Good stuff. We will continue the journey up next. BYU Sports Nation, our good friends Spencer and Jerem will be joining us. We'll find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. said it, man. It's time to go down to BYU Sports Nation to go talk to two incredible taco lovers, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. It's funny that you bring that up because last night um, I was hungry after work <laughs> and it was late, I was like at 8.30. Yeah, yeah. Home. I got in line for Del Taco oh. because I thought how many? it's like, it's like how, three for a buck. Yeah. Is that, was, is that what the, it is? The line was, I think. The taco line was, Tuesday, man. The line was too long. So I left, went to another establishment. But you know, today's Taco Day. Today we're celebrating Taco, taco day. day. Yeah, so you probably ought to go back. Maybe I will. Maybe There's they'll have like of the taco. Mm. I, I do love of the taco. What is of the taco? Del taco. Del taco. Oh. <laughs> Del means. Uh, oh oh oh! The... You're you're actually translating it for me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Isn't you. There a BYU radio yeah. uh, Spanish channel. Uh, there is now. Ahora. TV, BYU TV has a Spanish yeah, no, Portuguese no, channel. We no. should get a BYU radio Spanish. But today I was teaching, uh, Rico Suave means rich, smooth. Yeah, baby. A rico Suave. Hey, okay, I've rich, got a question. Rich, smooth? Uh-huh. Look, I, Rico's rich. I can hear the BYU radio channel now. Yeah, smooth. Bienvenidos a BYU Radio. <laughs> Is he a vampire? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Count Dracula? <laughs> That's kind of what it sounds like, right? Um, yeah, it totally does. <laughs> a lot of energy there. I like it. Hey, okay, NBA All-Star Game. Yeah. They're I, changing all the rules. I kind of like it. Do you? Yeah. I think it's a cop-out. Why do you think it's a cop-out? Because the, the, the East has no players, the West has <laughs> all the players, and this is the NBA's way to save face. Well, now, who, now, who's Bo- gonna pick? Boston and Cleveland have some players. Who's going to pick Kyrie Irving? Yeah. Will LeBron pick Kyrie no, Irving? No, he won't. <laughs> But what if what if Kyrie, LeBron's going to be a captain? That's going yeah. to happen. What if Kyrie gets the last pick? What if what, what, what if he's if he picked very last? Oh. Well, they'll pick from a pool of players, I imagine. Yeah, so it's it going to be, be like I want this bench player from the Lakers. <laughs> I want this role player from the Bucks. It's the, to- the, the top vote getters, and then yeah. I mean both, and then then the 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 highest vote getters are the captains, I guess, and those captains, the highest vote getter in every conference or division or whatever they call them, are the captains. Didn't they learn from the NFL? Probably the Pro Bowl, the whole team selecting thing, it didn't work. It won't work. This won't work. This is, I think it's to save face, and it makes sense. I get why they're doing it, but maybe what they ought to fix is fix the system that makes it so the players are spread out more even, evenly and lovingly. Yeah, are they, they're worried lovingly? that because yes. the West is so loaded that guys that should be all-stars will be left off the roster? Yes. That's Except in the East, guys yeah. that shouldn't be all-stars will make it. True. It's just cray-cray. But it, I, I honestly think it'll be interesting. It'll be a fascinating game. Yeah. I, and will they I, pick better mix players? It up. It's still going to be 184 to 182. But... <laughs> it totally will. It's still nobody will play defense. Yeah, and it doesn't matter well, That's the at case all. in the NBA 
yeah. regular season as well. Listen, it's, the All-Star Weekend is all about the dunk contest. Can we just agree on that? Exactly. And then there's, you know, for the— to, And that used to be better, too. But for the it's, intellectuals, it's, it's, for the, it's the three-point contest. Oh, we but, need big names dunking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that brand, the big brands. Oh, yeah. Individual brands would be nice. Like I, LeBron's never been in the dunk contest, right? What's up with that? He's like, afraid. What? He's Jordan, afraid. When he was younger, was known for his scoring prowess. Obviously, he was yeah. amazing. But he was it, like Dominique Wilkins versus Michael Jordan was epic. Yes, but it was epic. in the younger part of his career. Like LeBron needed yeah. to do it when he was younger. Yeah, yeah true. I think if you're, I think if you're voted a captain, you're automatically in that competition. I think if you, if yeah, whatever. I'm just trying to make up rules as we go. You know, Sounds just, like the NFL. This is exactly. And the NBA now. Now, Hey, so guys, what's on your show today? Hmm. Today is compelling see. and rich, let's okay? It's always, com- the, the it's always Rico and Suave. Who's the quarterback going to be Friday night? That's the question. We'll play some sound bites from Kalani Sataki on BYU football. We've learned some new goodies. With from last night. Excellent. The latest. Excellent. How much of a chance is there that Tanner Mangum will play? We'll discuss the following question as well. Would you, would you take Tanner Mangum at 75%? Yes. Or the field no. of quarterbacks. Does that make sense? Yeah. What would you rather have? We'll discuss that coming up. That's good. By the way, it's, it's Tanner, Tanner Mangum at 75% with his boot. Well, he's not wearing the boot. <gasps> Is he bootless? Yes. That's a, that's a, oh, that's a headline. Right. I did not know the he was bootless. The question is whether he gets cleared to play. Yeah. And, and uh, if he can tough it out, right? Like he's, he's at the minimum amount of probably weeks for – Mm, that's yeah. that's scary though, and that can you imagine how yeah. hard well, that would ankle, be to do? If the ankle's integrity is okay, then it becomes about pain management. Yeah. I don't think they'd let him play if his ankle right and was not in good enough shape. And that's right. the cl- getting cleared by the doctors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. He manage the pain. Oh, but you also he's got. I mean, maybe I I don't know. As a coach, I might just sit him just so that because we need him for a lot of games. So one more week, maybe. One more it's week. It's either that or freshman Joe Critchlow, who I imagine will be the backup. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you know what? So he's got to be ready. Yeah, just play him. Just play Tanner. <laughs> anyway, not to be rude. Okay. What Last a- time BYU played a freshman against Boise State, it worked out pretty good. It was Tanner Mangum. It was Tanner Mangum. Yeah, it was. Hail Mary. Was well, that a Hail Mary? Uh, yeah, he's fact. checking up Hail Marys and stuff's happening. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, guys, it's, it's four and a half minutes away. Go wax on, wax off. That's the good brethren, Spencer and Jerem. They're four and a half minutes away when you can just have nothing but just this incredible waterfall of BYU sports knowledge. They just they just drop it down like rain and manna from heaven. So not only is it raining tacos, but it's raining Sports Nation. Ah, oh, those guys are great. They got a good gig. I mean, they work really hard. By far, they work harder than... I think anybody, you know, in BYU Broadcasting, that team, because they never get a break. Wrong. We hardly work. Wrong. I mean, we put out, don't get me wrong, we put out a lot of stuff. You're wrong. But we sleep half the day. And and some of us sleep half the show. And I'm not going to tell you who, but it's not me. His name is Jeffrey Liam Simpson. 
Hey, we like to talk about heroes on the show, and in Las Vegas, there's been a lot of them. And so today we're going to talk about a veteran, Marine, and his friends that sprung into action in an attempt to save dozens of lives during the Las Vegas massacre. Taylor Winston, 29, was close to the right-hand side of the stage when gunfire rained down at the Route 91 Harvest Festival. He said the first gunshot sounded like fireworks, but he soon realized people were screaming. He saw bodies dropping to the ground. Winston, a sergeant who served in Iraq, and Jen Lewis fled the, with the crowd. They separated from their buddy Jason, who hung back to ensure his other friends made it to safety. One pal was shot in the bicep and survived, but Winston and Lewis didn't abandon their fellow music lovers. They spotted a work truck near the venue with no owner in sight and commandeered it to transport victims to the hospital. Jen and I luckily found a truck with keys in it and started transporting priority victims to the hospital, made a couple of trips and tried to help out the best we could in until more ambulances could arrive. Um, by the way, so they just went and stole the truck. Not asking for permission, which is totally good. That's what leaders do. They step up and they, they do what they can. And you saw a lot of that um, when you with that, with that shooting. And so we're just going to hold Taylor Winston and all of his buddies, his friends, um, Jen Lewis, all of them up as heroes, along with all of the other people that went back to the scene and did everything they could to help those, even sitting in harm's way, we we salute them. And we're by the way, it's a great sign that uh, in deep in the heart of of all humans is this need to serve and love one another. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.